Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. This morning, Kamala Harris has just released her plan to fight the climate crisis. She aims to be carbon neutral by the year 2045. Five candidates have unveiled their plans within the past few days ahead of CNN's big town hall on this very topic tonight. So how do the plans stack up? Let's bring in CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. Bill, great to see you. Good very exciting you. what's happening tonight. Yeah, it's big. It's big. And seven so, hours. But just seven hours on the climate crisis. So just take us behind the scenes. Why did you all decide to do, why did CNN, I should say, decide to do one topic with this? Well, it's because the, there was so much uh, cry out from those voters who will caucuses for Democrats or independents who put this topic at the very top of their concern list. And uh, many were calling for a dedicated climate debate. All 10 on stage, the DNC didn't go for that for whatever reason. And so we thought, well, let's make it happen. So we're doing back to back to back to back to back to back town halls just focused on this. And look, I'm biased. I think we could do a town hall a day on this and it wouldn't be enough to cover it because it is everything. It's all everything in our lives from energy to politics to geopolitics to psychology to history. So, you know, Sort of a cheat sheet of who has the most aggressive right. plan, who has the most interesting plan, who has the most radical plan. What should people watch for tonight? So you should watch for, I mean, really what you, the only way to gauge it these days is people don't really relate to, you know, sort of changes, tweaks to the EPA laws or something. They talk about dollars, right? So at the modest end of the scale, you got President Biden. His blueprint is about $1.6 trillion. Former VP, but you just promoted him, but go on. Well, what did I say? President Biden. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> he appreciates that. Yes. In an alternate universe, maybe he is. Uh, but yes, the former vice president, $1.6 Bernie Sanders says, I will see you in Ray's. Almost $17 trillion. And he wants to basically, you know, Bernie's plan is by far the most ambitious, wants to basically de facto nationalize the power grid the way FDR did car makers in order to fight World War II. His platform, he wants to guarantee everybody $1,000 a month sure. universal income. For the economy. And he thinks that that then will cover uh, climate migrants as they relocate. There are some estimates that... By the middle of the century, you know, hundreds of millions of people will have to move to higher ground. Is a thousand dollars a month going to cover that? You know, so, the, so we're going to parse all of that. I'll just put up the schedule for everybody. It looks like every candidate has about forty minutes mm -hmm. to do this, and so this will be. Is this? Are these just questions from viewers and voters, or will they be able to kind of? Um, spew their complicated, spew is probably the wrong word, <laughs> explain their complicated climate. And welcome back to Flower Politic Podcast. It's the 5th of September, year of our Lord 2018. And by our intro, I'm glad I waited till Thursday because we had stupid on CNN last night. Oh, yeah, that's them touting how awesome CNN is at pushing the liberal talking points. And oh, did they? They pushed. And they pushed. I mean, usually I do some banter here, but we don't have time for banter. Because this shit, sweet Jesus. We're seeing uh, firsthand the effects of climate change as a powerful Atlantic hurricane is sitting right now off the coast of Florida. It could make landfall tomorrow in South Carolina. More extreme weather events like Hurricane Dorian that's churning toward the Carolinas right now. Think bigger fires in the West or deadlier heat waves, supercharged storms like the one we've seen now, Hurricane Dorian. 
which is hovering off the coast of the Carolinas as I speak. When you look at the severe weather, yeah. uh, certainly we're seeing it with the hurricane now. Yeah. The top Democratic presidential candidates are all with us tonight on the heels of the deadly Hurricane Dorian, which is leaving neighborhoods underwater in the Bahamas, utter devastation. It now heads north along the United States coast. You know, the storm comes as we are facing a catastrophe of unprecedented proportions. You know, Hurricane Dorian is just one, right? One thing, right? One sign of that dangerous world that scientists say we are entering if humans do not cut carbon pollution. Flooded coastal cities, island nations underwater. We're coming to you, of course, tonight just as Hurricane Dorian, the strongest storm anywhere on the planet this year has decimated parts of the Bahamas and is threatening the East Coast. Talking about superstorms and mass extinction, worsening drought, just as Hurricane Dorian is threatening the East Coast after devastating the Bahamas. Now, right now, Hurricane Dorian is hovering off the East Coast of the United States. We're seeing storms that are intensifying, and that's just one sign of the dangerous world that scientists tell us we're entering if humans don't cut carbon pollution. Of course, the idea of bigger and bigger hurricanes more and more frequently, that's one of the things scientists are worried about and point to as an indication. Now on the East Coast, as you all know, we're dealing with Hurricane Dorian. And again, scientists tell us consistently that we are seeing more intense storms more frequently that are more complicated by the effects of climate change. And right now, as you know, the Carolinas are bracing for Hurricane Dorian and its potentially life-threatening storm surge. You know, scientists have partly blamed human-induced climate change for the intensity of these storms that are hitting our coastal states. You know, scientists say that humans only have 11 more years to avoid the catastrophic consequences of this crisis. Food shortages, rising sea levels, more extreme weather events like Hurricane Dorian, which is turning toward the Carolinas. Your climate plan calls for zero, net zero emissions by the year 2050. Um, there's a lot of policymakers out there who say, look, it's got to be done faster. They're talking 10, 12 years. Your climate change plan uh, talks about spending $1.7 trillion. There's other candidates out there who are talking about spending $16 trillion. Is your plan aggressive enough? I guess that's the question. People yes, say. I think it is aggressive enough, and it's gotten good reviews from most of the environmental community. It's been rated very highly, and uh, I think that, uh, that it is aggressive enough. Human population growth has more than doubled in the past 50 years. The planet cannot sustain this growth. I realize this is a poisonous topic for politicians, but it's crucial to face. Empowering women and educating everyone on the need to curb population growth seems a reasonable campaign to enact. Would you be courageous enough to discuss this issue and make it a key feature of a plan to address climate catastrophe? Well, Martha, the answer is yes. <laughs> You have the anxiety of the worker. Um, but as uh, David was asking earlier, there is something about the anxiety of the consumer and the citizen. One of the things that we keep being told by science is, you know, this cattle issue is a real situation. And as he was pointing out, it really is about supply and demand. If you don't want the beef, they don't raise the cattle the same way. But that's a big ask in American culture. So what do you say? to the Americans that you want to persuade who maybe aren't that left. Maybe they're in the center or center right, and they're saying, you want me to eat less beef? Welcome back to this unprecedented night on CNN. Ten Democratic presidential candidates. One urgent issue, the climate crisis. Scientists tell us we are seeing the consequences of the climate crisis now, but that will cross a massive tipping point if the world warms more than 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. We've already warmed up the planet one degree Celsius since the Industrial Revolution, so we're more than halfway there. 
We have 11 years to avoid the catastrophic consequences of this crisis. Food shortages, rising sea levels, more extreme weather events like Hurricane Dorian that's churning toward the Carolinas right now. And for the latest on Dorian, I want to go to the CNN Hurricane Center and bring in Jennifer Gray. Jennifer. Well, Dorian has actually strengthened just a little bit with this latest advisory at 5 o'clock. Now 110 mile per hour winds just shy of a Category 3, actually, with this center just offshore. You can see Jacksonville to its west, gust of 130, moving to the north-northwest at about 8 miles per hour. That's a little bit slower than it was before. It's expected to continue this forward speed, though. It is expected to impact mainly South Carolina and North Carolina as we go forward in time. Charles? For example, your conditions will continue to deteriorate as we go throughout the evening. Peak winds expected by late morning tomorrow, and then the storm moves on, skirting the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Wolf. All right, Jennifer, thank you. Good evening, and welcome to the CNN Democratic Presidential Town Hall on the climate crisis. I want to welcome our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer. Tonight, the top 10 Democratic presidential candidates will be here on this stage in New York City, appearing one by one for the next seven hours. This unprecedented town hall is dedicated to the climate crisis, an issue many voters say needs aggressive action. And scientists say that action needs to happen now. We're seeing uh, firsthand the effects of climate change as a powerful Atlantic hurricane is sitting right now off the coast of Florida. It could make landfall tomorrow in South Carolina. Tonight, Democratic and independent voters will be asking the questions live here in our audience and also by video. And CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, will join in the questioning as well. My colleagues and I uh, will help guide the conversation. Later tonight, former Vice President Joe Biden Senators Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, they will all be here. Yeah, they're news. They're, they're objective news source. And that's their town hall. Curtis Huck, video, partisan hack, Wolf Blitzer, began CNN climate town hall coverage by directly blaming climate change for Hurricane Dorian, which by definition isn't how climatology works. CNN is not a news organization. It's a far-left propaganda organization that works to push the agenda of the Democratic Party. We're seeing the effects of climate change right now as a Category 2 hurricane sits off the coast of Florida. Yes, because Florida isn't a hurricane hotbed, and Category 2s are something brand new, people said. Actual Chiron will oil guns America. Woke clown show top to bottom. This is a Chiron on CNN. A Chiron. Question, what will your administration do to give a voice to environmental racism? Dudes, just a year ago, I had that in my college crazy because it was some crazy shit on campus. That's a news organization saying that climate is racism or climate is a racist or I don't even know what that means. We talked about it before on the show. So black people don't use electricity or drive cars, eat beef. Really? That's your theory. Saul Kapur. Camelia Harris and CNN Climate Change right now. I'm prepared to get rid of the filibuster to pass the new green, the green new deal. 
If Republicans continue to block progress, get rid of the filibuster to pass a Green New Deal. Presidents don't vote on it, but a president's position will affect whether there are 50 Senate votes to do it. You understand what that is, right? That's the, we're going to take over the country as communisms? Ryan Savandra, Andrew Yang refuses to say that Americans won't be forced to drive electric vehicles. Yang mentions a possible confiscation of gas vehicles. So they, they say the best option is a buyback program. Nick Searcy, we're going to tax away all your money so that we can buy back from you all the things you have bought that you like and use. Every Democrat in America running for president. Another person, they want to use our own money to buy back guns and cars. Joe Biden wants to ban all magazines and hold more than one round. I guess they really do want to send us back to horse and buggy and muskets. They're really big on confiscation. They want to confiscate everything. No way, we're going to get the guns. Because it's right. They want to take all your shit there. Here's Yang and Camelia Harris. Tell me anywhere in your soul you would vote for people who say the following. So, so what's she the did, what's the up. answer? Are we all are we all going to have to drive electric cars? Um, we are all going to love driving our electric cars. <laughs> will we have to drive electric cars? <laughs> well, the, the, there will there will still be some legacy gas guzzlers on the road for quite some time because this is not a country where you're going to like take someone's you know like clunker away from them. But you are going to offer to buy the clunker back and help them upgrade. Um, certain countries have changed their dietary guidelines. Uh, to reduce the consumption of red meat uh, in light of the impact of, of the climate change. Yeah. Uh, if elected, uh, are you, will you be supporting uh, change uh, in dietary guidelines? And then how will you plan on implementing the changes so that people effectively change their diets? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, and thank you, Carol, for your work on the question. Um, there is, I, I think of the, the point that you're raising in, the, in, in a broader context, which is, that as a nation, we actually have to have a real priority at the highest level of government around what we eat and in terms of healthy eating because we have a problem in America. Um, and we can talk about all that we are now the subject of this conversation. We can talk about um, the amount of sugar in everything. We can, talk, we can talk about soda. We can go on and on. Uh, so the answer is yes. Um, but I'll also say this. We, the, the balance that we have to strike here frankly, is about what government can and should do around creating incentives and then banning certain behaviors. I mean, just to be very honest with you, I love cheeseburgers from time to time, right? I mean, I, I, I just do. And, and I think that, um, and, but, there is, but there has to be also what we do in terms of creating incentives that we will eat in a healthy way, that we will encourage moderation, and that we will be educated about the effect of our eating habits on our environment. And we have to do a much better job of that, and the government has to do a much better job of that. So, we, have, yeah. So, I mean, I'm just saying, you love cheeseburgers. I mean, we all. Do. I don't know I whether mean, you, you know from time to time try the Beyond Burger, day, the Impossible yes. Burger, right? They try, but it's, right. it's not quite the same. That's my personal opinion. Um, but would you support changing the dietary guidelines? The, the, yes. The, you know, the food pyramid. But people yes. to yes. reduce red meat specifically. Yes, I would. And I. You know, I've said it on the show before. I, I've. I have just at nauseum, repeated myself on the concept that Dems want to control every aspect of your life. 
They want to tell you what to eat, what to drink, what to think, who to worship, and definitely the words. They're all into wordsmithing, that these words are no good because I can't win my argument if you use that word, and if you use that word, and you're a racist, you're a homophobe, you're a transphobe, you're a sexist, you're an ableist. Oh, you're horrible because you think uh, kids shouldn't transition to the opposite sex when they're fucking three. But when you hear these things come out of their mouths, pushed by our media, that's the worst part. It wasn't a Democrat who put a Chiron environmental racism. It was a person in a major newsroom who put that up. Katie Pavlich, Democrats want to control every aspect of your life. How many kids you can have? I missed that one. How many guns you can have? Zero. How much meat you can eat? What your home thermostat says? Madness. And to prove my point, MSDNC, Chris Hayes, and Ali Valeshi will moderate a Climate Forum 2020, a two-day event featuring 2020 presidential candidates, including Sanders, Booker, Buttleg, and more, in a conversation with young voters about climate change. An actual reply to this. Yeah, I'm getting close to the mic to hit the point. If you really cared, it would be a week-long event. That's how crazy the base is. A normal person said, you should hold a seance instead because it's more scientific. I mean, sweet Jesus, folks. I watch a show on Smithsonian because I'm a geek. I like the Smithsonian channel. They have air disaster, air power. I learned the whole origins of the AC-130 the other day, and I had a little chubber. And I peed a little bit at my pants watching that show. And, of course, the A-10's been on. And it's just a great show. But I watch this thing called The Perfect Storm. The first very episodes from 1890, a hurricane that killed 4,000 people. Hurricanes have been here a long time. It's what the planet does. In fact, I watched a movie the day after where they said these super storms were cooling the planet and healing itself and fixing the environment. It was a natural way of doing things. In that case, it was a cold, a, a cold hurricane. Remember? Helicopters fell out of the fucking sky. I was done by science, scientists. Yeah. So every fruitcake media has been doing this Dorian thing, which, by the way, isn't even doing major damage to the United States. And I feel bad for Freeport because that fucker sat over it for a day. But that's what climate is. High-pressure systems block low-pressure systems. Takes a while for it to go off. There was no shearing. If any geek have ever watched the Weather Channel, it just sat there because it couldn't get out of the way because the high was pushing it. And now the high is going to protect the United States and push that thing up the coast and out to sea. Really, this is a no-brainer. It's not a Katrina. But these videos are everywhere Oh my God, what used to not be here. AOC jumped all over it. This is what climate change looks like. It hits vulnerable communities first. Oh, that's what you're talking about, racism. I can already hear climate deniers screeching. It's always been like this. You're dim. No, this is about science and leadership. We either decarbonize and cut emissions, or we don't and let people die. Carpe duncum. 
Carbon dioxide is responsible for the location of the Bahamas, so the hurricane is racist. And he nails it. Folks, if you want to live on the coast, this is what you pay with. Or for. If you live there, you're taking in the inherent risk that you could have hurricanes. It's nothing to do with climate change. It's called fucking climate and science. This is what happens. Big storms hit the coast. It's all part of your climate change craziness that all these places are going to be underwater because it's going to, we're not going to have ice caps, which hasn't been proven true because we were supposed to have ice caps that were on my front lawn right now because it must be in an ice age when I was a kid. It's no different than when I lived in Oklahoma. Inherent risk, Tornado Alley, California. Inherent risk, earthquakes. I mean, I haven't found it yet, but I'm sure somewhere out there, somebody is blaming climate change for earthquakes. It's got to be there. I bet you, you know you know what, let's do this a live test on the show, because I did this on purpose. I have a short show today, on purpose, so it wouldn't be three fucking hours. I'm typing it in. Climate change affecting earthquakes. This is Google. Does climate change really trigger earthquakes? Uh, let's get another one. How climate change trigger earthquakes, tsunamis, and everything? The Guardian. Sweet Jesus. Sweet Jesus on a popsicle stick. Here it is, man. It's fucking there. This is how crazy these fuckers are. Tectonic plates are affected by global warming. Global warming may not only be causing more destructive hurricanes, it also could be shaking the ground beneath our feet. Devastating hurricanes, more than 1,000 lives lost, and must be climate change. Almost inevitably, Hurricane Matthew, recent rampage of the Caribbean, blah, 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 blah. Short answer, okay. Does uh, blacklash of global warming driven by humanity's polluted activities, does this really stack up? The short answer is no. Blame for single storm cannot be laid at the climate change door. Oh, boy, what CNN just did it. The current hurricane season, da, da, da. The current consensus holds that while a warmer world would not necessarily mean more hurricanes, it would rise in a frequency of most powerful and therefore more destructive ones. Uh, decent, uh, let's try to get to the part where they try to break this down, because I, I can't believe it's actually here. Da, 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 da. And with hurricanes of typhoons, follows storms, tornadoes, typhoons, hurricanes, and mid-latitude storms, along with earth heat waves and floods, are widely regarded climate change shock troops. Forecast to accelerate the destruction, loss of life, and financial pl- pain as planet Earth continues to heat up. It would be wrong to imagine, however, that climate change and extreme events is driven all about higher temperatures, a bit more wind and rain. The atmosphere is firm on us. Okay, where where do you get to the point, Guardian? See, they put it. At, this is a clickbait. I'm reading, but perhaps even more astonishing, Lou and his team propose that storms might act as safety valves, repeatedly short-circuit the buildup of dangerous levels of strain that otherwise conventionally instigate large direct earthquakes. This might explain, the researchers say, why contact between Eurasia and Philippine Sea tectonic plates in the vicinity of Taiwan has far less in the way of major earthquakes than further north. In similar vein, it seems that huge volume of rain dumped by tropical cyclones leading to severe flooding may also be linked to earthquakes. Sweet God, it's there. Holy guacamole on a fucking popsicles. You gotta be kidding me. So, tectonic plates are affected by 
climate change. There's another article, NU Science. Will not increase dramatically in a short time, if that's depending on local geological conditions. However, previously stated, the low-pressure centers of typhoons can prompt vibration. This is from a fucking research facility. Yeah, you're full of fucking shit. That's the point. They link everything to climate change because it's not about climate. It's about control. They watched George Bush win two elections on control of terrorism. The left doesn't have anything on that. They believe the terrorists are just misunderstood motherfuckers running around blowing shit up. And if America wasn't so bad, they wouldn't be blowing America up. Fully not understanding the concept of, yeah, they just fucking hate you because you don't pray to Allah, dumbass. And hey, you bitch. Yeah, you bitch. Why aren't you under a burqa? You're just a fucking handmaid. Yeah. It has nothing to do with America. It's anybody who's a fucking goddamn infidel. So this is their Al-Qaeda. In short, this is their Al-Qaeda. We can get all control if we get them to fear the boogeyman of climate change. Yet every time a real study comes out, there's nothing you can do to change it. The damage is done. Yeah, we can decarbonize a little bit, and we are. Cars put out way less emissions. A lot of states have emission values. You can't even drive that clunker anymore. Every car is built with a catalytic converter that doesn't put out as much smog as it used to. Airplanes, all this fucking shit. People are flying less. The only thing you got us on is, yeah, we don't set our thermostat to 100 when we sleep and 80 while we're in the house. We, we don't do that. Nobody does that. I'm waiting for winter. Why you shouldn't burn wood and you should keep your house on 20 degrees. It's good for the planet. No. No, it's not. But we already read last podcast, I could stop eating my beloved hamburger, which by last night... I fried red onions, some Tillamook cheese. Bro, bro, Matt in Oregon, I actually found a hamburger sauce here. It's close to Burgerville, USA sauce. It's, it's in Kroger. It's called uh, freaking just sandwich spread. It's really close. So I had a big gloop of that on some freaking wall burgers frozen. Just the regular, because they have some cheese and bacon ones that are really gross. It doesn't taste like real meat, but the regular burgers are just delicious. Some Nathan seasoned fries. Holy guacamole. I had a double burger, baby. Two of them. And I went out and let, watered the dogs, and I raised my ass to the air, and I farted. I'm just throwing it out there. I did. And somewhere, somebody got hit by an ice molecule called a fucking piece of hail. Yeah, we just threw back to the last podcast. But there's an interesting guy, Ryan Mao, who actually breaks this shit down. And I'm reading this. It's very long, but it's important. And these are all tweets. Because I think the problem with most of us is we go, yeah, there's been climate change. As I've said on the show a million times, Parents never had air conditioning. You need air conditioning in Oregon. It wasn't a thing you had back when I was a kid. And I'd done the drive from Sacramento to Portland, and southern Oregon don't look the same. It looks like a prairie. It looks like Colorado 
more than it looks like Oregon. Some of that's deforestation because they logged the shit out of it. A lot of it is just climate. Things have changed. El Nino, El Nina, the natural earth process of changing patterns has changed where people get rain, when they get rain, yada, yada, yada. Where I live is highly more wet than it used to be. Actually, to blow up your theory there, fucking climatologists that have zero qualifications like me but are on Twitter as if they have degrees. When I first moved here, we had horrible thunderstorms. It was worse than Oklahoma. We're talking like the house shaking, huge wall clouds coming from the west. We were in the basement a lot, and we had a lot of tornadoes. Knock on wood. That was actually a glass desk. doesn't really work, but I don't have any wood around me. Oh, I got a wood door. Let me do the wood. Well, this I don't think that's actually wood. That's one of those cheap interior doors. I don't think it's wood, but long story short, we have a lot less intense thunderstorms, a lot less tornadoes, and we have way more rain. Our winters have gone from mild to periods of snow when the cold front dipped across the Kentucky border to, I had 12 inches of snow on the ground here. We didn't get that before. We first moved here. I didn't need a four-wheel drive, but 2004, we got stranded at the fucking house. Brittany in South Dakota, or North Dakota, and Zach in Tennessee, we all have that as a favorite Christmas ever. I came back from California. We got snowed the fuck in. We had an old pickup truck. Well, we didn't have the truck. Truck was in California. We had a PT Cruiser. The wife liked it for a year. That's when she went through her 85 cars. And... We couldn't get up the hill to our house, which prompted us owning Jeeps. I couldn't get home. Now, 15 years later, big storms, a lot of snow, still need the Jeep, but not as much snow. We used to get two inches, one inch. It was a lot of snow. But the cold fronts aren't dipping across the Kentucky border enough for us to get the actual cold air when the rain is here, because usually a north, south, north, the north storms, not that you give a shit, but just to break it down, you're going to get the snow. But a lot of times in the south, it's the southern moisture hitting the cold air. That's why we get freezing rain. It goes over the top of it because hot air rises, yada, yada, yada. And it goes through the cold air that's on the ground, and we just get a lot of ice. But even then, we don't get as much as that. 2008, 2007, 8, 9, one of those. I remember blowing up on Obama who didn't give a fuck. The entire area I lived in, was done. We didn't have electricity. I had to go out and buy a generator and burn wood to heat the house. We were without electricity for like four days. Some parts of this area were without electricity for two weeks. Nothing. It's all changed, but it's, it's fucking science. It's not your socialist takeover of the fucking world, you jackasses. So, Back to the guy, Ryan Mao. Now that everyone's back at work, the conversation about Hurricane Dorian and climate change will begin in earnest. That's fine as long as you stick to sound science. So what is current consensus among hurricane scientists? It's right here. It's important to point out that this 2019. It's not the year 2100. And should not take climate model output from 80 years in the future as proof of a signal you are seeing today. The chances in the 22nd century are a long way off. Two, we have a long historical record going back to 1851 with, of course, decreasing certainty in hurricane data. However, since the 1940s, we have aircraft recon and the satellites came along in the past 50 years. We also have good records of U.S. landfalls. 
Is there a climate signal with Hurricane Dorian? Detection. Is this climate signal due to human-induced CO2 warming? Attribution. Framework. You should satisfy both. Observed sea level rise is surely a detectable result of global warming and is addictive hurricane-caused surge. What about more hurricanes, more intense, wetter, or slower moving? With Dorian, focuses obviously upon stalling over the Bahamas. There is some recent research on change in hurricane movement speed trend towards slower, but it's not understood the specific mechanism is causing this. In other words, a climate signal has been detected in hurricane statistics by a physic- physical reason still lacks. From a weather point of view, we know why Hurricane Dorian stall. We can observe it, diagram it with maps and successful models, the behavior days in advance. Hence, why much of Florida remains safely in their homes. Did climate change have an impact upon this? Good discussion here of hurricane movement and climate question. But there is quite general to historical trends. There has been no research specifically on Dorian, just speculation about it fitting a trend. A stalling hurricane over water like Dorian will eventually, eventually, 24 to 36 hours, cause its own weakening. Cooler water from below will be mixed up to the surface, the opposite of high-octane fuel. However, the rainfall will add up over a small area. Thus, scientists would need to look at the factors that went into stalling a Dorian, the steering currents at 25 north latitude in the subtropics, then qualify it how, why climate change affected this particular atmosphere configuration. Herculean task. Hurricane Michael rapidly intensified up, up until landfall in the Florida Panhandle. That was arguably a consequence of its fast movement, the complete opposite of stalling. Two Category 5s in consecutive years, slow versus fast movement. The ocean surface temperature in late summer, p- plenty sufficient for most intense hurricanes, including high-end Category 5 across a large portion of the Atlantic Basin. And all else is if all else is equal, the warming, then warming these ocean temperatures will allow for stronger storms. However, the Atlantic is currently a marginal hurricane basin that requires a lot to go right in order to spin up an intense storm. You need a disturbance, usually an African easterly wave. You need weak vertical wind shear. You need instability in moist air. There's a societal need to understand if, how hurricanes are changing the current climate and during the coming decades. The answer, or lack thereof, will not satisfy most people. It's a mixed bag, complete with uncertainty and caveats. The public should be aware of overconfident assertions that diverge from the current expert consensus. Some scientists are way too eager to make tenuous connections between hurricanes and climate change. The media tends to amplify these voices. Let's consider this op-ed from the New York Times. The capable author read the fourth National Climate Assessment Report, collected some data, and then presented the results. Does this effort reflect the current scientific consensus? First sentence, the frequency of severe hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean has roughly doubled over the last two decades, and climate change appears to be reason. Yet, much of the conversation about Hurricane Dorian, including most media coverage, ignores climate change. Frequency of several severe hurricanes defined as Category 4s and 5 has doubled in the past 20 years. Comparison between 1980 and 99 and 2020 and climate change is the reason seems pretty definitive there's even a chart this author is convinced cbs news has an article shocking headline intense hurricanes like dorian produce 1,000 times more damage and they're becoming more common let's look at the evidence in there the author weather prof a meteorologist does not cite the NOAA gfdl consensus but instead weighs the evidence himself the dots are connected between recent category five and climate change like the New York Times article, it is, is it really this simple? From the article, 
Over the past 169 years of record keeping, there have been only 35 Category 5 hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin. Given this statistic, ignoring the trends or cycle, that means in any given year, there's only a 20% chance of a Category 5 hurricane. It should be noted that before satellites began tracking hurricanes in the 1960s, the statistics are less reliable. In the past four years, there have been five Category 5 hurricanes in the Atlantic Oceans. Matthew, Irma, Maria, Michael, and Dorian. The chance of so many Category 5 storms forming in consecutive years is only a fraction of 1%. This lends credibility to the mounting evidence that warming oceans, warmer climate change, is magnifying. You're just taking a statistic and making it real. From the UK, here's what would probably be the categories as climate denial article. Yet it accurately relays that what's in the current scientific consensus: the lazy assertion that Hurricane Dorian is caused by climate change. A whole article based on facts. Who's pushing this? You just heard it. The media. This week, and you you heard it come out of people's mouths on TV. The 100,000 flights a day that now crisscross the skies pump almost as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as 28 member states of the European Union combined. <clears throat> You've heard people saying that on TV. Just like guns. We'll show it in a second. Guns, they're doing the same thing. They're getting stats pushed by the media, and then they run with it as if it's fact, but it's one person's fact. Varda Menta, apparently travel writer, argue you can't go on vacation anymore because of climate change. is an official genre now. This is from The Atlantic Today. However, in contrast with other climate villains such as domestic heating, transport, and food, holidays are a luxury, are extravagant add-on, to what we should be do, can live without. Somebody says, go fuck yourself. So now you can't go there. But nobody cared this week in the media. New NASA data on forest fires, deforestation, refutes climate alarmists. Nobody covered that. They're just cherry-picking shit for politics and pushing it as if it's a fact. It was a Cat 5 for half a day, and then it went down to a Cat 2. But as they say, we've had more Cat 5s, we've had less hurricanes. Remember, after Katrina, we were told we were going to have eight of these a year, we're all going to die, the hurricane's going to go into fucking Kansas and rape cows. Didn't happen. It didn't happen, folks. So to end climate, because I'm just so sick of this stupid because it's being pushed by our media, which then pushed the left, far, far left, to the forefront, and you would never do that with far-right people. This funny article. Joke about Floridians shooting at hurricanes resurfaces Dorian approaches. A real PSA. Florida residents reminded not to open fire on hurricane. They literally show a dry a diagram. Obviously, the reason behind not firing guns in Hurricane is rather simple. The strong wind gusts could fling the bullet anywhere, potentially killing or injuring somebody else. According to Inverse, the helpful graphic actually originated in 2017 by the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence during Hurricane Florence. If you shoot any bullet in the hurricane, it will travel fast enough to kill someone, but its trajectory will be blown way off course, making it nearly impossible to predict where it will land. It will inevitably hit something or someone, as with any time you shoot blindly in the air, you never know where the bullet might go. The AR-15 typically fires a bullet 5.56 diameter and 45 millimeters long. According to Federal Premium 
ammunition ballistic calculator, after traveling 500 yards, a bullet's velocity would fall to 1,152 feet per second, or 785 miles per hour. It's still really freaking fast. Plus, it would be delivering 147 foot-pounds of energy, which is in combination of velocity and energy that creates more than enough power to break the skin and cause serious injury or death. Does not firing a bullet in a speeding hurricane should be a universal idea with no need for a warning. People or social media responded to the graphic in jest while making political statements about Trump. There for some... There... They are for some same people for whom shampoo instructions are printed on the back of the shampoo bottle, said one user. No one could have predicted that the country that elected Donald Trump would also be the country that has to warn its residents not to open fire on hurricanes. This country blows. We can't even shoot hurricanes anymore. What's the point of any of this? Which I think is pretty funny. The warning comes shortly after Axios reported that President Trump himself casually floated the White House advisors about nuking the storm. And we already covered the last podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's funny. It goes back to that meme generator of the guy, tornado, and a shotgun and American flag. I think it's funny. But the simple fact that the media has pushed climate racism scares the shit out of me. But it shouldn't, because right as predicted, here's Sonny Hostin. And McCain. The soundbite is McCain saying, I'm not going to live without my guns, you fucking moon bats. But Hostin took a Vox statistic and ran with that shit. And failed the background check. Now, where it went bad from there is he should not have been able to get a gun anywhere. He took advantage of of these loopholes that that people are refusing to close. And I think there's this notion that, well, more guns will make us safer. We have more guns in the United States than any other place in the country. So if it were true that more guns would make us safer, we would be the safest country in the world. But we are not the safest country in the world. And that's the bottom line. One thing that I thought will be that was encouraging for me is that we know that uh, Vice President Biden is a moderate and we know that he's been willing to go across the aisle mm-hmm. and work with the other side and that he is revered by many Republicans um, as someone that will work uh, with the other side. But he said on this issue, mm-hmm. there is no room for that. There is no room for compromise and that he will not work with Mitch McConnell uh, on guns because he believes that we are in um, just a state of disrepair when it comes to guns. And, and that gave me some hope if he is the Democratic nominee, because I think he really understands that we are um, in, in a state that we just must do something about this epidemic. But how is it hopeful to say we're not even willing to work with the other side anymore? Well, we, but we that can't because, we're doing nothing. because Mitch McConnell will not do anything. He will not allow a vote on anything because I think he's be- he's, he's beholden got, to he's the NRA. He's got to go. He's got to go. He is. All right. As the chick on a panel that spent most of her break shooting, I look forward to talking about this. Um, I want to say first and foremost, I actually think in media there should be a person, the way you assign beats in journalism, I actually think there should be a gun beat. Because there's a lot of people on TV talking about guns that clearly have never shot a gun, don't know the difference between a semi-assault rifle and assault rifle. Uh, Vice President Biden, as you were saying, he actually said that he wants to uh, have a complete and total assault weapons ban. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives doesn't even define the term assault weapons, so that could basically mean any gun other than, I guess, a
basket mm -hmm. in any way. So I think people need to start getting really specific. Beto O'Rourke wants to have a, a complete and total, I, I call it gun grabbing, but he wants to have a mandatory gun buyback. The government didn't own the guns to begin with. How do you think you're going to come to somebody's house and what are you going to pay? It just doesn't seem like that's rational conversation. They so for someone like me, I also want to say, you're talking about the NRA. As someone who's a lifetime member, there's actually a lot of controversy going on in the NRA, the way the money's being spent. Mm -hmm. The head yeah, guy's right. wife apparently used some of the funding for her to travel with her hair and makeup team. Mm -hmm. So again, as right. someone who's been a proud NRA member and has given a lot of money, I have a lot of problems with the way the money is being allocated at the moment, yeah. having nothing to do with Second Amendment rights. And I will just say, this is a this is a ground-level issue for me. If you're going to be a gun grabber, you don't get my vote. But, you know, we got to have a different kind of conversation. Point out. Whenever Which there is was what Beto O'Rourke and I interpret uh, many other candidates to be. Whenever there has been any movement on mm -hmm. guns, mm -hmm. like under Clinton, there was, he enacted the federal assault weapons ban, 1994. Yeah, and and the the, the murders and the, the went down. The mass shootings. And then and then under FDR, there was a firearms act that that limited under LGBJ. So Democrats, when they're in office, they do do something about guns. So if you keep voting for Republicans, you're going to get nothing done. That's basically the bottom line. When it comes to assault weapons, yes. Oh, and well, gun control. It's by far the most popular gun in America, by far. So if you're talking about, again, I was just in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. If you're talking around going and taking people's guns away from them, there's going to be a lot of violence. But they lived without them for many years I, during the ban. I'm not living without guns. I mean, I, I, it's not just that all simple. Guns. What about living without the assault weapons no, that are killing popular, our children? All right. I, I, but what about right. living without right. just that How gun? about we live right. in a, how about we live in a place? I'm not being virtue signal that 20 minutes into the How about we live in a place where we can actually walk in a mall and not look around and be nervous that someone's going to pull out a shotgun? Because that's where Again, like I feel safe that I can protect myself and I have guns in my house. I, all right. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> so for my two cents in yeah, this, I still just... want to understand why when you say, hey, let's talk about doing this. People say, well, there are things in place. I'm saying, OK, why aren't the things in place being utilized? So something, there's a breaking point. So either there can't be a loophole anywhere having to do with this because clearly, like many things, people who get away who want to get away with bad stuff will use it and get away with bad stuff. So we close all the other, try to close all the other loopholes. Let's try to close this one. Right, so if but that's someone a very different argument than gun grabbing, saying I well, want to close this specific But the argument loophole, that I'm making, that's what I mean. Yeah, is about the laws that are in effect. You can't keep saying to people, "Well, there are laws in effect," if you don't make them take effect. But there's a total difference so, between talking about closing a, a loophole with the gun show, yeah. which, by the way, I'm for. And the difference between that and being someone like Beto O'Rourke who's saying you're going to confiscate everyone's gun. Well, I think probably he's because... He's going to buy that. Is he, is he I buy confiscate every single gun? Well, you, I well mine's not for sale, Beto. That's just not right. Or, I or, don't, just, or just I the don't, assault weapons. I think most people feel about... And, you know, a lot of people in the middle of the country also feel maybe... 
One assault weapon would be fine, but people got 14 of them. Maybe well, if we had, well, all you need is one. Yeah, but, but that's all you need is one. But, to that's all, but all you need is all you need is one car to yeah. drive up on the on the I don't think on the sidewalk or Senate. Uh, it, I don't think what, we need a weapon of war. You know, you may not, but you may you will have an easier time talking about. Listen, right. we're not going to. We're not trying to take all your guns. We're trying right. to. Tear them down because everybody has way too many guns. Mm -hmm. And some people, we don't know how they're doing, like this kid who decided to go off because he got fired and just decided to kill a whole bunch of people. When you see that week after week after week, everybody needs to sit down at the table mm -hmm. and have this conversation. We'll be back. Later, Jay-Z's NFL foul. How critics are saying the hip-hop star. So where'd she get it from? Fox! Americans make up less than 5% of the world's population, yet they own roughly 45% of all the world's privately held firearms. This has become an American routine. After every mass shooting, the debate over guns and gun violence starts up once again. Maybe some bills get introduced. Critics respond with concern that the government is trying to take away the guns. The debate stalls. So even as America continues to experience level of gun violence unrivaled in the rest of the developed world, nothing happens. No laws are passed by Congress. Nothing significant is done to try to prevent the next horror. So why is... That, for all the outrage and mourning with every mass shooting, nothing seems to change. To understand that, it's important to grasp not just the stunning statistics about gun ownership and gun violence in the United States, but America's unique relationship with guns, unlike that of any other developed country, and how it plays out in our politics to ensure seemingly against all odds that our culture and laws continue to drive the routine gun violence that marks American life. Blame the guns. Guns bad. Dana Loesch answered this. The best you could. We also have the majority of liberty. Yes, we do. It's not the fucking gun. It's people, you dipwads. Crazy fucking people getting strummed up by media. Mental health issues. But more importantly, we may be one of the only countries in the world that it's legal for a private citizen to own as many fucking guns as they want to within limits. Because once again, Moonbats, you can't own an automatic weapon unless you want to pay for a SOT 3 fucking license, and that's about 3500 fucking dollars. And then the weapon costs about 3000 Because Tony, if he had the money, which he did at one time, but Gigi being my better half, stop me from doing it, I'd own me a 240 Bravo, and I'd be at the range blowing shit the fuck up. Now, I'd probably get an M60, because it would be cheaper to get nowadays. 240 Bravo is pretty fucking expensive. We also are the only country that has tens of thousands of gun laws that we do not enforce. Note to self. Next podcast, that'll be a subject. We have so many fucking gun laws. How many fucking podcasts have I reported crazy motherfuckers who have guns are not supposed to? If you watch Cops, just last night, or was the night before, but we watched it last night, uh, First Responders Live, Live PD, Stolen Guns, 
felons in, in possession of guns, felons around guns, Chicago murders, dude had guns, wasn't supposed to. It isn't enforced. It wasn't even enforced by the dear one, Barack Hussein Obama. He let people go with guns because they were black and it was racism that put him in jail, he said, even though it was guns. We even reported on the show after him doing that, one of the people he released killed somebody with a gun. We don't enforce the laws. And I think that they know that because that's why they're pushing banning. Quinnipiac, and this is media-driven. To me, this is so media-driven. I don't have a relation, but I'm going to tell you right now, the numbers weren't this high before, and now they are because what the media has done since Obama with guns. Quinnipiac poll this week, 93% support universal background checks. We, we already have that, but that's okay. 82 support requiring license to buy guns. That's pretty new. 80 back red flag law. 60% back assault weapons ban. 46 back mandatory assault weapon buyback. That's right. 46% back a mandatory assault weapon buyback. Voters say 60 to 34% that they support stricter gun laws in the United States. Identical 60% support a nationwide ban on assault weapons, including 37% of Republicans, 85% of Democrats, and 60% of independents. However, voters are split on the idea of mandatory assault weapon buyback. 46% of voters support the concept, including a meager 18% of Republicans, 71% of Democrats, and 47% of independents. But what is an assault rifle? Here's how your Democratic candidates answered. Julian Castro, the AR-15 definitely qualifies, refuses to answer further. Amy Klobuchar, I think you know what it is. It's a weapon that killed nine people in Dayton in 30 seconds. Bernie Sanders' campaign refused to answer. Cory Booker, it is defined in our legislation. Jay Inslee, as defined in Clinton area 1994 bill, Tim Ryan, a lot of different kinds. Andrew Yang, there is the military style. Bill de Blasio, I could not get, get you a legal definition. Can't. They don't know what the fuck it is. What is an assault rifle? I know what I had in the military, three round bursts. Bayonet stud. I, I call that an assault rifle. What I own right here behind me, hanging on the fucking door. One looks a lot like it. Doesn't have a bayonet stud and only fires semi-automatic, which means I pull trigger, one bullet comes out. The other one looks like a fucking plastic toy that you could buy at fucking Hobby Lobby. They fire 5.56. They look like deer rifles with a bunch of fancy shit on it. But they want to go down this road. No compromise. Biden goes extreme on guns, calls for ban on all magazines, rips Texas for allowing worshippers to defend themselves. 
He's just all in. But as I've said on the show a million fucking times, it's not assault rifles killing people. At least 43 people shot, eight of them fatally in shootings across Chicago over Labor Day weekend. It's a fucking pistol. The Trace runs an article which, once again, this is all media driven. Teachers and even some students have written out wills in case they're killed in school shooting. 16-year-old says she wants to be cremated because the idea of being buried freaks me out. Cam Edwards. Every one of these teachers and students is more likely to be struck by lightning than to be shot and killed in an active assailant shooting. I think there's real mental health harm caused by the sensationalistic media coverage. There is. I mean, motherfuckers are outfitting their kids with bulletproof fucking backpacks. Which, by the way, won't stop a 5.56 round. May stop a 9mm round. I had to wear ballistic plates. Alyssa Milano. Can't go to school. Can't go to your place of worship. Can't go to a concert. Can't walk down the street. Can't go to a festival. Can't go shopping. Guns are destroying America. People's response to hers. Can't live in fear. I go to all those places alone and are with my family. I encourage all to do the same and hope they do. We cannot control the actions of crazies and shouldn't allow crazies control our actions. But it's their inability to fucking know what they're talking about that kills them. This is a congressperson, a Democrat. Call me crazy, but I think it should be harder to buy an AR-15 than it is to buy Sudafed. Somebody says, you're crazy. Jessica Fletcher, you people just make crap up and see who believes it. And that's how the media does it. Educated hillbilly goes on a screed. Very well done. This is why you lose the argument. The media is giving you these polls. But you're losing the argument because you don't know shit about guns. Okay, so here's the deal with journalistic raging on Twitter about gun terminology, knowing technical facts or proper definitions. Hell, how guns even work. You see, most journalists, most not all, are from well-to-do white families. Most avenues into journalism involve an internship as well. Rich white people can do that. Most of them are there for going to be from liberal families in blue cities, not exposed to guns in any ways, and very isolated and experienced people who have grown up with guns. Being rich and liberal and white means... They've had their way most of their life. They get what they want. Many are legacy admits to Ivy schools. Hi, Matt and Glazia. So not much has been earned, and they aren't used to getting pushback, especially from the lessers. Now add to the mix of this hyperinflated ego and easy measure. And yes, I'm going to offend some people here, but philosophy and engineering aren't equal. One is hard, and one isn't. So you have an entitled white liberal who now thinks they're the smartest person in any room because they excelled in an easy major in a school they slid into. Look, there's a reason most journalists don't have medical, engineering, STEM, etc. degrees. Those are really hard. Now we get back to guns. This hyperinflated ego who thinks they're smarter than everyone in the room suddenly is getting owned by rural high school educated folks online like really owned. The fragile egos can't take that. They're the smart ones. They want to insert Bregan College here. They went to insert Bregan College here. <clears throat> and God damn it, their thoughts and opinions are worth a thousand times that of some hick who doesn't in rural America. So why, what do they do? Every time they put out a tweet and in their mind might as well be gospel, they get hammered with people pointing out all the technical mistakes in the tweet. Well, they can't have that. 
So what do these fragile millennials do? Learn about guns? Talk to people who own and live with them every day? Of course not. They stomp their feet and throw a hissy fit and say being acknowledgeable about guns is unnecessary. Being white is a major factor in this analogy as well, because anyone who studied American gun laws knows, and I and I have, all gun laws, I mean all of them, are rooted in racist ideals to keep firearms out of the hands of black and brown people. How did Apple turn live into, doesn't it? Autocorrect might be the weirdest. Okay, I don't know what that has to do with it. Other than the last sentence, he's spot on. They don't know what they're talking about. They have no fucking clue. They don't even do anything on the up and up. They inflate school shootings to be anybody with a BB gun around a school sometime, could be at night. They lie at nauseam over and over and over. They just lie. They make it up. You want proof? As we go to a music break, here's the media just this week on guns. I mean, none of this sounds like journalism. It all sounds like activism. That's right. The president was briefed by the attorney general on that shooting. But as he returns to the White House today, Washington is under increased pressure to act on the issue of gun reform. The president has sent mixed signals on where he stands on that front. Following the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, the president said there was a strong appetite for meaningful background checks. But then after a call with the NRA, he said strong background checks already exist. Now, the House Judiciary Committee has plans to discuss gun control legislation as Congress returns this month. But remember, the House has already passed two background check bills. So far, it's the Senate that has failed to act. And as calls for gun reform continue to grow, Texas lawmakers are moving in the opposite direction, loosening gun reform restrictions. And new laws go into effect today in Texas, the same state where that shooting was held, that make it easier to carry firearms in public places like schools and churches. Wait. And that gridlock has existed on gun reform for years. It, any way, anyhow, that when the recess is over and people come back to Washington, they'll at least begin the conversation about gun control again. Yeah, I, I'm with you on activity. I, I now call it, there's a lot of rhetoric, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of anything beyond that after El Paso and Dayton. I'll say this, though. I think the timing of this one, you know, here you, you, there were starting to be some questions with the focus when Congress came back, shift to the trade war, shift to these other things. I think this is a sobering reminder that this uh, that gun regulations, what to do about it, is going to be f- front and center. And I think this this shooting almost makes it inevitable that they uh, Congress is going to have to tackle this first thing when they come back, not as sort of. And our job here is to help the public discern politics from facts. And I think what we saw right there from the governor was uh, a lot of political uh, you know, talking points. I think he got a little defensive there as well uh, when the question came up about what they were actually going to do about it. Absent the actual information that, you know, we, don't, we didn't get a lot of details from, from law enforcement on what actually transpired or what the investigation entails. So the focus was really on the governor saying, we, you know, we love each other, thoughts and prayers and the like. But he, if you listen, he ticked off a number of incidents that have 
have happened under his watch to include Dallas, Sutherland Springs, Santa Fe, El Paso, and now Midland. That's been oh, about four years since that happened. And I recall after Santa Fe, I was there covering it in Texas. He said that he was going to come up with this blue ribbon commission, have these uh, you know tabletop uh, you know, gatherings where people can get together and discuss what they were going to do. That's been years. And so, again, I, I don't know what the answer is. It sounds as though the, the, nothing is going to be done. I don't have a lot of faith that we're, well, I think we're, I think as just as the FBI agent in charge there said, we're going to be here again talking about another fatal shooting in Texas yeah. because I don't really see anything happening after this. But, That's right. And that is the debate, right? Uh, maintaining the rights that are enumerated in the Constitution with uh, what we're actually seeing on our streets right now. And, you know, m most sane people would submit that you can protect one's right to bear arms while also dealing with the issue of weapons of war that are on the street. And one thing that was so bizarre that he that he had mentioned, again, this isn't, uh, you know, a partisan uh, or political comment. It's just listening to an elected official, someone in charge, try to explain what just happened. One thing that he said is that you heard him say, well, there have been other incidents in the past that didn't involve this AR-15. And then he ticked off, you know, the Santa Fe incident, which we were there covering, involved a shotgun and an IED. But again, that's a, such a weird way to move attention away from this one weapon of war that has appeared in so many scenes by saying, well, but there are other weapons that... Today, Walmart CEO Doug McMillan referenced these tragedies as he announced sweeping changes to the retail giant's ammunition and gun sales. In a memo, he writes, it's clear to us that the status quo is unacceptable. The company plans to discontinue sales of short-barrel rifle and handgun ammunition and stop handgun sales in Alaska, the last state where they still sold those weapons. They'll request customers no longer openly carry firearms into stores in states where open carry is permitted, but they can still buy deer rifles and ammo. Following a month of mass shootings, the stunning announcement from Walmart's CEO to employees to, quote, make the country safer by ending sales of all handgun ammunition and ammunition used in assault-style rifles. The retail Goliath sells one in every five bullets in the U.S. The NRA tonight calling the move shameful but others applauding it. I think they've been looking at additional solutions, and I think the steps they're taking really show the need for corporate America to step up and make a difference. So far this year, 289 mass shootings. Walmart leadership is stepping up to the vacuum they see from Washington leadership. They have to protect their customers. They have to protect their associates. The question tonight, will other retailers follow Walmart's lead? Dick's Sporting Goods is already cutting back on gun and ammo sales after the Parkland school shooting. In a statement, the NRA now says it is shameful to see Walmart succumb to the pressure of the anti-gun elites. Rather than place the blame on the criminal, Walmart has chosen to victimize law-abiding Americans. I think at this point, it's up to the, the advocates on gun safety to really start playing tough, dirty pool with the NRA and start going after their board members. We've seen it in boycotts on advertising. I think it's meant to hold every single member of that board accountable in their hometowns and go after them and their businesses and call them out. Because until we're gonna, it, nothing will get changed until basically you're one or two steps removed from someone who's been touched by an act of gun violence. And we've seen one congressman get there, but unfortunately, I think until it hits a critical mass, we won't see it. That's a perfect segue to the candidates. Uh, Joyce, let's take a look at what some of the candidates have been saying this weekend on the trail. 
We have too many guns. We sell to one another weapons of war that were designed to kill people on a battlefield that are used to kill people in a Walmart or on the side of a street or in a church or in a synagogue or, or in a mosque. I work with Mitch McConnell where we can agree. But on this one, he's not going to agree because he is where the president is. And so we just have to beat them, flat out beat them. We've been having great ideas for decades. The problem is that Congress does not have the courage to act. If they don't within the first hundred days of my administration, I'm going to take executive action. And Joyce, you know, even the House has not passed anything on uh, assault weapons or those big magazines. Yeah, I think that's right, and Senator Harris gets it exactly right when she says they haven't had the courage to act. But that includes everyone. You would think that with some of these new poll numbers, with support for universal background checks in the 90s, even with support for assault weapon bans with a strong majority of Americans, Congress would have the cover it needs to take steps that law enforcement has always sought and known were desirable. You know, we had a ban on military assault-style weapons in this country in the 90s, and it was successful. And when that ban stopped being in existence because of pressure from the NRA and, and other gun supporters, that flooded those weapons back into the country. It will be very difficult to walk that back, but we can start with background checks and with proper resources for the law enforcement agencies that have to conduct those checks and reclaim guns that are sold improperly, but also with banning high-capacity magazines, these magazines that enable a shooter in one of these mass settings to get off multiple shots in a very short period of time, at least starting with that and then moving forward on to slightly more controversial provisions like the assault weapon ban, seems like a really well-warranted direction for Congress to move quickly. I would say I think Judiciary Committee will be actually taking up a ban on high-capacity weapons next week when they're back because I do think they recognize that there's an urgency around not just background checks, but getting these these weapons of war and what's required for these weapons of war off the street. It's so frustrating because we constantly show these graphics and these numbers that 93% of Americans mm -hmm. support background checks, which is true and which tells us something important. But the problem here is those 93% of Americans don't make it nearly their number one or number two or number three political priority. That's what the president knows. He knows that those people who are attached to their guns make that a number one issue for them. And what needs to happen in this country for us to get to a better place is people who are, who are worried about these mass shootings and understand the importance of, of chipping away a little bit at gun culture, which I'm coming to see as an oxymoron along the lines of jumbo shrimp, right? Um, they need to make it a priority to push through these background checks to get assault-style rifles off of the streets and that sort of thing. It has to be a political priority. And, and the other thing that's interesting in terms of it being a priority, you have to have more of a conversation. And to have that conversation, you have to have people who want to make their voices heard in a different way. Is that helpful for him, that he went there, that he you know, dropped an F-bomb on live TV and said enough is enough and use that to illustrate his point? I mean, I think he's genuinely upset about this, and I think that's what it, I think that's what it conveys. I don't think that was strategic or anything. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's unhelpful. I mean, I think it's a pretty good reflection of the frustration that so many of us feel, and I think I've been impressed with Beto O'Rourke. I think with guns, I think that the same thing could be said. You know, mm -hmm. let's wait this out. And what happens is we become more numb to it, unfortunately. Oh, only seven today. Who, not 22, as, as, you know, a few weeks ago. And I think other countries look at this and think that we're crazy. And it's true. These universal background checks may not have prevented any of these recent tragedies, but they are good policies. So I think it's not a very good argument to say, ah, they wouldn't have stopped anything. But 
I think the American people are demanding some action in the president, uh, and, and I think the Senate are going to have to respond. I mean, clearly in the polling, the American people want to see something done. And there is broad support, 93% in this last poll from Quinnipiac, which was released on just Thursday, support universal background checks. And as we look at this, though, those numbers and the will of the American people don't seem to come into play very often these days. No, they don't, because uh, so many political officials are being held hostage by the NRA. And I am sick of politicians offering their thoughts and prayers. We didn't send them to Congress to pray. We sent them to Congress to address the national crises we are facing. And what we have going on with these mass shootings is a national epidemic. So get off your duffs and do your jobs and leave the thoughts and prayers for the rest of us who don't have the power to legislate. I feel like we need a beat after that, Anna, I, just, to, just to let it sink in. And, and I think your passion is important, and we need to hear it. And Former Texas Congressman and 2020 presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke is focused on combating these kinds of attacks after a deadly shooting in his hometown of El Paso last month. And he joins me now. Congressman, welcome. Let's start on the shooting. Uh, I want to play for our viewers your reaction at a campaign stop last night. Don't know what the motivation is, do not yet know the firearms that were used or how they acquired them. But we do know this is <laughs> up. Yeah, the, the rhetoric that we've used, the thoughts and prayers that you just referred to, it has done nothing to stop the epidemic of gun violence, to protect our kids, our families, our fellow Americans in public places at a Walmart in El Paso where 22 were killed, in Sutherland Springs in a church, uh, one or two a day all over this country, 100 killed daily in the United States of America. We're averaging about 300 mass shootings a year. No other country comes close. So, yes, this is fucked up. So one of the parts of your solution includes mandatory buybacks for so-called assault weapons. Uh, the USA Today editorial bar board argued against that. Uh, they said that you are playing into the NRA's hands. And here's what uh, was part of that editorial. The legislation would absolutely be doomed if it included a mandatory buyback provision. Anything smacking of confiscation would breathe life and energy into the not-from-my-cold-dead-hands crowd, endangering law enforcement and likely putting a full stop to any further gun safety measures. What's your response? You know, more than I worry about the politics or the polling, um, more than I care about what the NRA has to say on this. Uh, I care for, for my kids and this country. Go on, touch me if you want I ain't gonna turn you down You shouldn't know up front It takes no time To break this heart of mine Call me baby if you wanna Say you'll always be my man don't go expecting me to understand When you walk away in time Ooh, does it always end up like 
now, baby. I wanna see you shed your skin. Once it's underway, may the best man win. And I hope that you surprise me. the media bubble one podcast at a time here's tony reed come fly with me let's fly let's fly away if you can use some exotic booze there's a bar in far bombay come on and fly with me let's fly let's fly away all right, before we go into news and social media nuggets, some stuff that kind of ch- got to burn my saddle, chat my balls, all that kind of stuff. Seltzer, Trump's tweets tell public not to believe real reporting erode shared reality. Reality was a theme. Uh, Margaret Sullivan of the Washington Post did Trump's escalating attacks won't hurt the reality-based press, but they will do other kind of damage, my column. Reality. So what is reality for the media? Is it Dorian is climate change? Is it we need to take everybody's guns because we don't understand guns? That seems to be your reality. To Seltzer, apparently didn't like Labor Day holiday off. Instead, writing an article warning people that Donald Trump and his allies tell the public almost daily not to believe real reporting, but the frequency and predictability of the attacks don't make them any less damaging. To contrary, the falsehood-filled tweets and televised tirades are gradually eroding America's shared sense of reality. That's the media code of language. A shared sense of reality means everyone believes the liberal media's analysis. That isn't that true. Actually, the article the CNN correspondent posted the day that day, read more like an editorial than a news report. The headline, Why Trump's Constant Attack on Independent Press Are So Dangerous. Monday was prime example. Trump shared 22 posts on Twitter before noon. And between his quotes from Fox News and his tweets about Dorian, he blasted the Washington Post and spread misinformation about how major news rooms operate. He also shared a key line from his re-election playbook, claiming that our primary opponents are fake news media, not the Democrats. So of what Trump posts, <coughs> some of what Trump posts about the media is legitimate criticism. But most of it is misleading. At the root of all is a lie. The legitimate news outlets are fake. Seltzer's upset that Trump says journalists routinely make up sources out of thin air. For example, he has no proof for the charge. He doesn't? I could list a hundred of fake stories. Or this is America today is one of them. 
But Seltzer didn't note the source he quoted as anonymous and therefore could not be proven. Media outlets that use anonymous sources would refuse to prove that the sources are real. They, that's why they're anonymous. We don't know anything about the sources, whether they are highly placed or not, or more importantly, they have a personal political reason to unload in the stories. We don't know whether sources are betraying the trust of the employers by spilling the beans unless their off-the-record conversation suddenly goes on the record. Apparently, you can't question the media's ethics when they're not transparent. In his original tweet, Trump noted, I don't care. They take good news and make it bad. They are now beyond fake. They are corrupt, of course. Seltzer noted that Monday was a prime example because the president either misunderstood stands how the press operates or is misleading people on purpose. And he goes on and on and on. And this one, not factually sound, a Newsbuster report last week, Lawrence O'Donnell host, the last word, fucking made shit up. How many made up shit have we had? Russia, lie. Dossier, lie. Trump lost by 4 million votes. That was California. Trump war run, a, what was that, an 8 to 1 district? Voting districts? What else was lies? I mean, anybody? There's hundreds. I can't even list them all. The reality they don't want to report because you notice migration's pretty low right now. We're not hearing about it. Media mute after seventh illegal arrested for rape since July in Sanctuary County. Montgomery County, Maryland's liberal leaders are defending their lax treatment of illegal immigrants after ICE revealed that seven illegal Im- immigrants have been arrested for sexual assault rape charges in the past six weeks alone. Unbelievably, the networks could find no time at all to even cover these stories of children being assaulted and completely preventable crimes. Friday, local Maryland Portland WJLA's Kevin Lewis reported that there's been at least seven undocumented arrests among Montgomery County for rape since July. On his timeline, he described some of the disgusting details of the horrific crimes against victims as young as 11. In April 2017, an immigration judge sent them then 35-year-old back to Honduras. He later re-entered the U.S. at an unknown t- date and by unknown means. Carisco Hernandez is being held without bond. On August 30th, U.S. Immigration Custom Enforcement Officers in Baltimore lodged a detainer in the Montgomery County Detention Center on unlawful president of Emilio Carsaco Hernandez. Carsaco Hernandez was previously arrested by immigration officials on March 30th, 2017, and was ordered removed by an immigration judge on April 3rd. On April 6th, Carisco Hernandez was removed to his county, country of citizenship, and re-entered the U.S. again. Here's a list of individuals arrested on sex charge offenses in Montgomery County, Maryland over the last 30 days. Some defendants, including Luis Perez-Guerran, have no record on file with federal authorities. That means they could be undocumented. The feds just can't confirm. And there's even more. There's more than just the seven. Here are just some of the details this local reporter... Uh, What the hell happened to my... Yeah, oh, they got ads everywhere. Man accused of molesting children blames actions on Salvadorian cu- culture jokes. The seven male suspects all had Honduras accused of targeting females as young as 11 year old. Six of these suspects knew the victim. One attack, a rape near downtown Silver Spring, was random. Uh, staff in a middle school in Wheaton contact Child Welfare Service report Lopez Guzman has molested a 12-year-old female student. Police describe Lopez Guzman as a victim, non-blood relative. Um, 
often gets touchative. When asked to elaborate, the girl stated the 20-year-old made a habit of groping her private parts while saying things like, how delicious. Oh, yeah. We need him in our country. 13-year-old. This man raped a 13-year-old. A man accused of raping a 15-year-old girl in a grandmother's bedroom has been deported from the United States less than three years ago. Emilio Carrascas Hernandez, we just talked about it. Uh, on August 15th, the 15-year-old girl spoke in Montgomery County Police Special Victims Investigation Division. She explained that her stepfather, Carrasco Hernandez, has sexually assaulted her on multiple occasions. In one instance, the victim stated that she was in her grandmother's bedroom when Carrasco Hernandez entered, pulled down her pants and underwear, and began biting her shirt. The five foot seven inch tall, 200-pound man then slowly walked the victim to the bed edge and lowered his own pants. Victim stated that she could not move. Emilio Carrascas was squishing her body, and he did things that are too graphic to publish. This Guzman dude admitted to touching elementary school-age boys' genitals, claiming it was cultural joke. This timeline is just fucking scary. Then there's another one. It's not on sex, but here is another winner, winner, chicken fucking dinner person. Where the fuck was it? Um, sorry, I lost it. Here it comes. Montgomery County Police have charged 25-year-old Letitia Guzman of Silver Springs, Meriden, with child neglect, reckless endangerment. Guzman is accused of abandoning her newborn baby in a wooded area. This is the one from last week. She's also illegal. Did you see that on NBC Nightly News? I didn't. Or how about this? YouTube terminated 17,000 channels for hate speech. The blog post of the company balanced the dual goal of being pers- persevering free expression while also protecting and promoting a vibrant community. Uh, we're determined to continue uh, the blog linked to YouTube quarterly community guideline enforcement. Uh, so the, the chart also showed the reason various channels were removed were overwhelming 90.3 being attributed to spam, misleading, or scams, while four were removed for hateful or abusive. The first question flowing from this was constitute misleading. The second concern would be the seemingly small channel taken down still constitutes 17,818 accounts deplatformed within the first quarter. To repeat for emphasis, this is not the number of videos taken down. This is the number of entire channels removed. YouTube has removed a massive amount of comments with 99.3 being targeted by automated flagging, amounting a gigantic 533,733,538 total for wrong think. Out of 9 million 15,566 total videos removed in a single quarter. More than 7.8 million were flagged automatically with 81.5% of others removed before they could actually be viewed. While only 1.2% of these videos were removed for hateful or abusive, content may again seem like a small number. This still amounts to 111, 185,000 videos. For those concerned that this seems absurdly high, even for YouTube, it would be or- correct. YouTube admitted that the spike in removal numbers are in part due to removal of older comments, videos, and channels that were previously permitted. <clears throat> More to follow on the left-right divide. You're pretty sure to believe it's right that got the boot. So, to our media bias, I have to do it every podcast. 
Here's a, just a couple trinkets. Uh, Trump makes us ill. Two networks saying that when Biden lies, well, it's almost Reagan-esque. It's the betterment of the country, and it's folksy. And NBC News had a birthday, and they had a cake, and you won't believe who the cake was for. Are you exhausted? Are you burnt out by the daily deluge of Trump news and nonsense? If so, you are not alone. Writers from both sides of the aisle have been commenting on this lately. Take a look here. Frank Bruni writing, Donald Trump has worn us all out. David Ignatius talking about Trump fatigue. Jim Garrity saying even Trump's supporters are getting tired of the daily drama. And Rich Lowry of Politico wondering, is Trump fatigue going to bite him in 2020? Let's talk about this with another writer who weighed in on this recently, Slate Magazine's Dahlia Lithwick. Her piece uh, was titled The Demoralizing Reality of Life Under Trump. And Dahlia, you say, you know, this is an insane time. Why? Why do you think this summer has been especially hard? Well, I think everything you've talked about today, Brian, it's accelerating. Things that used to be, you know, one shocking thing a week. Now there's seven a day. And we're just sort of like squirrel, 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 trying to keep track. And I think people are wiped out. Wiped out. Yeah, so now I mean, we're I, at Labor Day. Now we're heading into a new season. And, and you say in one of your pieces for Slate that we're experiencing on a daily or weekly basis stories that could be impeachable. You looked at the articles of impeachment for, for Nixon, for Clinton, for Johnson, and you said, wait, this is happening every week. So why is that message maybe not getting through to people? Well, I think it's just, again, uh, what Jeff Goldberg just called the circus atmosphere. And I think, you know, one of the things mm. I wrote about is not just that we're getting physically ill, we're exhausted, uh, we're not sleeping, uh, everybody's drinking too much, but that I think we're going numb. And that's the real fear, is that people are starting to say, maybe I don't care or maybe I don't trust the news. And those are really catastrophically bad outcomes if that's where we arrive. But what do you tell folks about avoiding being numb? How, what, what, is the, what is the way to avoid that? Well, I think we as journalists have some responsibility to cover this as though it's more than a reality show, more than WWF. And I think if we continue to just tell the truth, tell the facts, point out the lies when there are lies, and try to help people understand that the situation today is exponentially worse than when they showed up at the airports after the first travel ban was put into effect. It's so much worse, and yet we're so tired. I think our job in the press is to just be morally serious, do our jobs, tell the truth, and hope people will stick along for the ride. The comparison, Trump to me is a shield for him on this stuff. Right. Yeah. I'd give Joe a break. Joe's a storyteller. Uh, <laughs> he makes his points through anecdotes, through stories. And is probably thinking, let's not get the small details in the way of a very, you know, a very powerful story. And so I'd, I'd give him a break on this. And apparently the, the, the person on whom he pinned the medal acknowledged that he yes. actually got the medal. So the point he's trying to make is not self-aggrandizement. It's simply to demonstrate the heroism of uh, the men and women in our U.S. military, which is a totally valid point. Uh, anybody here remember Martin Treptow? Martin Treptow was Reagan's closer in his first inaugural address, one of the best inaugural addresses in modern history, and he closed with the story of a World War I hero named Martin Treptow. Though nothing he said in the address was technically wrong, he conveyed the impression that he was buried at Arlington, 
but he was actually buried in Wisconsin. So, but the larger point still stands about American heroism in a time of war. And I think, you know, this kind of thing, particularly compared to the current right. incumbent in the White House, uh, should not, you know, be a, a big problem for him. Danny, it's an interesting comparison because there's a part of Biden that feels more Reagan-esque that way. You're like, ah, it's Grandpa, it's Uncle Joe, whatever that is. I let the old man do it. I also think when it comes to Joe Biden, the, the Uncle Joe situation it's interesting because we are living in the age of Donald Trump, and that changes how we perceive and cover Joe Biden. But we have to cover it with context. Those are two different situations. When Trump lies, it's about Google and Google changing votes and making you scared about things. When right. Joe Biden lies, it's about trying to say he's going to be commander-in-chief and he understands heroism. And I think context is super important, but it, it doesn't mean we ignore Joe Biden's gaffe. Context and nuance, they're hallmarks of presidential campaign Crazy. coverage. <laughs> anyway. Do you think that harms him or people just won't care? I think that story in particular shows the best of Joe Biden and the worst of Joe Biden. It's him connecting and telling a really compelling story. It's also him uh, sanding away the edges and, and conflating things and, and maybe confusing details. Uh, I don't know that any one of these makes a difference, but I think cumulatively it can actually matter. And it, it's really up to voters. And, and people have made the comparison, say, President Trump with his misleading statements is on another scale. All of that is true. But, but can he use that in a way, saying, look, he does it too, or I mean, he'd never admit that he did it probably does that it probably but can he use that against joe biden in a credible way well i i would presume that donald trump will use it in some way to say this is a guy that 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 is making things up all the time but i think from biden's <laughs> perspective I he think, would know yes right. donald trump would know I, I think from biden's perspective though and, and biden supporters they could say look when, when the vice president does it it is to to make a point in a more artful way perhaps and to connect with people in a genuine way when donald trump does it it's often to to demean and belittle it, it, you were out with voters in South Carolina. I was in Pennsylvania, as you saw. I, I didn't feel it was resonating. I don't Is think it, it resonated at all. And, and I should preface this by saying I was out with Joe Biden at Joe Biden events, so it's a <laughs> slice of the electorate. But I specifically wanted to hear from people about this. And time after time I was told, you know, well, I put my foot in my mouth. We all put our foot in our mouth. There's a sense that it, these qualities are almost endearing to voters. There's, there's a sense that they find him more believable because he makes missteps every so often. And and what I'm hearing is that people just say, come on, let's focus on the big stuff. Exactly. It's the economy and it's the character of the leader and the character of the country that we want going forward. And that's what they're saying. It's like it's big time. It's big stuff that we care about. It's not about the story. Welcome back. This is so exciting. It is time to ne and now catch up with our next guest, sitting Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Get a Supreme Court Justice. <laughs> <laughs> come on, this. come on. How great is this job? She's currently on summer recess and here to talk about her latest children's book, Just Ask. Be different, be brave, be you, which also has a Spanish edition. Still hard to believe I'm going to say justice so to my honor. So good to see you. Thank you for being here. It is delightful to be here. Oh, oh by the way, uh, this is your 10th anniversary. Yes. Yes, it is. Congratulations. Thank we have a little, you. well, big, a very, very large cake. Oh, for you. my gosh. <laughs> Look at that. Congratulations on 10 Thank years you. on the bench. Thank you so much. An activist liberal <coughs> Supreme Court nominee. If they're not jerking off, over that old wrinkly bag of shit. It's over this knucklehead and the other one. All three of them are super libs. But when is it a news channel <clears throat> prerogative to have a birthday party for a Supreme 
court justice. This kind of destroys her packing the deck, having extra judges to build a fill-in when they want to. And it's all about the law. The left and the media are such fucking liars in the Supreme Court. I mean, these people are supposed to be heard, not seen. And heard when they do rulings on the law. But Kagan, Sotomayor, they were a liberal fucking activist who that when they went through during Obama's time were so qualified. They're just the the letter of the law, justices. But as we'll see with our This Is America, you know, you put up a conservative guy, mm-mm, mm-mm. they're fucking rapists and murderers. Then we have Joy Behar and Stephanie Rule. This was my original This Is America, Stephanie Rule. Listen to these fucking comments. How was your uh, break? Lovely. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> was very restful. Yes. Did you take pictures? Did you do anything? I, the only the only significant thing was that I went to a cocktail party with Nancy Pelosi. Uh-huh. And um, there I am looking. That's nice. She looks good. <laughs> and uh, she looks she, good. Yeah, now, she where are your glasses? No, I know. For a second, I took them off stupidly. <laughs> um, and uh, and she she basically you know talked about things that we know already about how you know. She feels that um, it's a crucial, mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. crucial time we're in, that mm-hmm. our children's futures are at stake, right. that everybody has to vote, and that we've got to beat Donald Trump. I mean, right. basically, that mm-hmm. was what she was saying. Right. And everybody, you know, is like, okay, how do we do that, you know? And right. so Does we, she have the answer? Well, she believes, I think she, I, I, I infer that she believes that a moderate has a better chance of beating him than the uh, more um, radical uh, candidates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because she, she pointed out that in the midterms, it's the moderates who beat uh, the Republicans in those uh, in Trump states. And so just based on that information, it would make sense, doesn't it? Oh. That that's what the country prefers. So I so hope she that we're too far away happy. from politics. She was happy. She was happy. Her good. husband, you know, they're like. Lo- and you're happy. You yes. had a break. You look good. Thank you. Glasses are nice. Thank you. How's Bernie? around the world and who is personally profiting when people stay at those properties. That's not normal either. Uh, so the situation with Vice President Pence, he is staying at that Trump resort uh, in Ireland. This is an official government trip, although his staff has indicated that the Pence family is paying for the family members uh, who are doing this travel. He's traveling with his mother uh, and with his wife, the first lady or second lady, Karen Pence. Uh, but it's strange. I mean, a lot of his official meetings are in Dublin. Uh, that is not where he's staying. Dublin's a big city. Certainly they have hotels that could accommodate the vice presidential delegation, but instead they're staying uh, at the Trump Golf Resort. It's also confusing. If he's traveling with his mom, which one does he call mother? All right, thank you both so much. Phil Rucker, Victoria DeFrancesco Soto, and Noah Rothman. Coming up, the potential danger increasing by the minute as Hurricane Dorian churns off South Car- the southeast coast as a major Category 3 monster. We'll be speaking... What the fuck kind of comment is that? You wonder why, okay, in one month, she's down 7.72, down two more, down 18, down nine, year to date, down 3.06. That's her ratings. 
You know, I get very defensive on Pence because his attacks are that he treats women nice. He's respectful to his wife. I call my wife mama. When we had kids here, I called her mama all the time. He doesn't go in a room with other women. He's a gentleman. But all because he's a Christian, she says comments like that, and that's new. That's a news network. I know they're not. MSDNC is not. But she's supposed to be a journalist. And then Behar jilling off to meet Nancy Pelosi. You know, there's people on the right, Sean Hannity, that are close to politicians. And don't we dog them for that? I mean, Sean Hannity is an opinionist. It's not a news show. They put off the view like it's news. It's news. But... There was something positive off The View, and I can't believe I'm playing it. You remember last year I swore off playing any View soundbites, but Whoopi Goldberg literally goes the fuck off on those goddamn Will and Grace motherfuckers for doxing people, and that will take us into news, social, media nuggets. Right. But when it's individuals, I think that then you're in, you're in, you're stalking mm-hmm. and you're starting to endanger that person's life. So I don't approve of that. Mm-hmm. What, so what about the fact that those donations are already public record? Well, that's something else. If they're out there and they look them up, fine. But so what are you saying that so Deborah can say I don't want to work with those people? It's already out there and I know who they are. Yeah, if Deborah if Deborah right. looks them up and it's already a matter of public record, that's her right. Why to aren't do? you um, proud of your support if you're proud enough to pay the money and donate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not condoning any violence against anyone. But, but if you're proud enough to donate, yeah. then, then listen, why the not? last time people did this, yeah. people ended up killing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Okay? Listen, your your yeah, idea of who you don't want to work with is your personal business. Do not encourage people to print out lists because the next list that comes out, your name will be on, and then people will be coming after you. No one, you, we, nobody. We had something called the blacklist, and a lot of really good people were accused of stuff. Nobody cared whether it was true or not. They all, they were accused and they lost their right to work. You don't have the right in this country. People can vote for who they want to. That is one of the great rights of this country. You don't have to like it, but you, we don't, we don't go after people because we don't like who they voted for. We don't go after them that way. We can talk about issues and stuff, but we don't print out lists. And I'm sure you guys misspoke when you said that because you it sounded like a good idea. Think about it. Read about it. Remember what the blacklist actually meant to people. And don't encourage anyone. Anyone. Who are you trying to get crazy with this scene? Don't you know I'm local? Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. Flight operations on a carrier are notoriously tough. 
Getting on and off a ship is the definitive skill that sets naval aviators apart from all others. The reason? The runway. On land, pilots have more than 2,000 feet to take off and land. On a carrier, they have just 300. Naval aviation is pretty unforgiving. If you're not focused and you're not prepared, um, then you're not going to be doing this business for very long. To take off on such a short deck, pilots have to generate extra speed. The solution, a catapult. A cat shot can launch a 60,000 pound aircraft from zero to 150 miles per hour in just two seconds. shot out of a gun it wakes you up it gets your adrenaline going and uh, and it's pretty exciting taking off from a carrier is hard complicating the matter the flight deck it doesn't stay still it heaves and sways with the sea in the seconds before touchdown Pilots have to make countless small changes to get the aircraft to line up perfectly with the deck. An F-18 typically hits the deck at over 150 miles an hour. To slow down, pilots rely on a system of arresting wires. Catching one is called a trap. We have three wires we can catch. When our hook grabs one of those wires, it feeds out the appropriate amount of cable to stop you before you would go off the end of the landing area. It takes years to become a naval aviator. The good ones make it look easy. It looks graceful and it's beautiful. But what you don't see is all the practice and repetition that goes into making that look that way. This is Damien Kemp reporting from AUSA for Janes. I'm speaking to Bill Fell, who's a Sikorsky test pilot. He's going to talk to us about the Raider helicopter. Bill, can you talk to us about the developments that you've had on this helicopter and, and how many flight hours you've got and what your plans are for the next 12 months? All right, so, so far we have 2.2 flight hours on the aircraft. That's two flights, and we have about 47 hours of groundwork that we've completed on the aircraft. 
along with that, we have hundreds of hours of simulation work that we've uh, done in the aircraft. Uh, we've gone out to uh, 20 knots in forward flight and 10 knots in side flight and worked out uh, a bit of the low-speed envelope looking at performance and handling qualities. In the near term, uh, in the future, we're going to be putting some time on the ground test asset. So we have a ground test transmission system test bed where we have the aircraft rotor system, engine, gearbox, and we'll test out all of those components. Uh, we're in a situation where we've got the aircraft time a little bit ahead of our ground test vehicles such that we need to spend a little bit of time working time into the ground test asset because we should be about two to one hours on that ground test vehicle to make sure that we're safe to go out and expand the envelope in flight test on the aircraft. Now, once we get out and we start expanding the envelope on the aircraft, first we're going to finish the low-speed portion. We're going to turn on the model-following fly-by-wire system, uh, and we're also going to engage the prop and start... Uh, uh, expanding the envelope from there, and we'll do a you know slow speed, mid speed, high speed flight. Now you've mentioned the prop, which is one of the more interesting aspects of this aircraft. Can you talk about the advantages of that and what it feels like as a pilot? All right. So the prop has several advantages, and one is the aft part of the aircraft, where the prop is, is not safety of flight. So. You can fly without the prop, and you have a normal helicopter where you're able to go out to around 150 knots, speeds that a modern helicopter can go. As you engage the prop, you're able to go out much faster, 220, 230 knots with the drag that we're carrying on the aircraft presently, and, and fly at those the much higher speeds. The advantages it has is... Uh, many. So you have linear acceleration. You no longer need to drop the nose uh, to accelerate and pull that collective up into your armpit or to decelerate, uh, bring the nose way up to where you can no longer see your landing zone. Now you can just apply pitch to the prop, apply thrust to the prop, and accelerate out in a level attitude. You don't have to change the body attitude of the aircraft. Similarly, on an approach, Every time you come into land in a helicopter, you're usually bringing the nose up, and you can't see where it is you're going. Now I can decelerate nose down and see the area where I'm going to land all the way down, adding safety to every everyday operations for rotorcraft. Additionally, from a tactical sense, you know, diving fire is a big application for this aircraft. I can go into a steep dive where I get a nice tight beaten zone for the weapons and not accelerate or even decelerate as I'm coming down towards that engagement area. What that provides for me is more time to engage the target as I, as I come into that uh, objective area. You've designed this as a scalable aircraft. Can you talk about what you're doing in that field and the other platforms which you are looking at, the other designs of this aircraft which you are looking at? Okay, so a few years ago, what launched this platform, we had the X2 Technology Demonstrator. And the X2 Technology Demonstrator was a five to 6,000-pound platform, single pilot, no payload really, just proving out the technology, and that worked fabulously. We went over 250 knots in level flight in that aircraft and exceeded all of our goals, low pilot workload, low vibrations, efficient uh, cruise speeds, and... Now we're going to the next step. Now we have an aircraft that we think is very close to something the Army will want. It has payload for six troops at 320 pounds, and it also has uh, configurable weapons that you can apply to the aircraft. Uh, and this is a roughly 10,000-pound uh, scale machine. Next, in 2017, we're teamed with Boeing on the SB-1 Defiant aircraft, and that's a 
like a roughly a 30,000 pound aircraft. And so in terms of scalability, that's a pretty broad spectrum from 5,000 to 10,000 and then a 30,000 pound machine. So it's pretty robust in that sense. That's great, Bill. Thanks for joining us today, USA. Those are some sound bites I've been sitting on for a while for our military corner. Last podcast, I played something for the Raider, and I forgot to even talk about it. And it sounds like an editing. Somehow my opening bumper got bumped, and I don't even know how that freaking happened. Which I'm going to take some new uh, Slipknot songs and make a new bumper. Thinking it's time for some new bumpers. But um, that aircraft is really starting to take hold. Been seeing a lot of videos online with that rear prop. That thing is getting close to 200 miles per hour. Um, and it could be the replacement for the Blackhawk, which would be kind of cool. Preceding that was Aircraft Carrier. There was a show on Carrier on Smithsonian. Sorry to keep talking about Smithsonian. But a great show in each chapter. There have been other ones, like PBS did one um, on Aircraft Carrier Life. But it's just unbelievable, all the things that happen on it. The last episode I just watched, they were building bombs. It's like they have the bombs, but they need this the... Uh, Seekers and the fuses, they keep them separate. Ever since those big accidents in the 70s and 80s, they kind of keep them separated for most missions, and they put together like 18 J-dams for these missions, and it was really kind of interesting stuff. So, once again, if you don't have the Smithsonian Channel, get it. It's worth it. For DirecTV users, you're talking five bucks. Yeah, five bucks a month. It's it's well worth it. So, uh, to the rest of our military corner, officer dies following survival training at Fort Rucker. Fort Rucker officials are investigating the death of an officer who fell ill during training. First Lieutenant William Blake Pickle, 30, was identified by post officials as a soldier who died after being airlifted to a local hospital. Pickle was undergoing survival training when he experienced a health-related issue requiring aeromedical evacuation to the hospital. Since it is currently under investigation, I cannot speculate on the findings of what the health-related issue was. Pickle, who was assigned to 1st Aviation Brigade on post, died after being medically evacuated to South Health Medical Center, roughly 25 miles from Fort Rucker. And he is a Tennessee boy from Cleveland, been in the Army since 2007, had fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I would bet my left nut is heat stroke. Um, It's hot, and you can get it really quick if you're not hydrating. You really can. Um, We almost lost quite a few guys in my 20 years where they went into seizures. They were so bad, and uh, we had to do those crazy <clears throat> mass infusions where you put the tube to the frickin' IV bag in their ass and shove it in there to try to quickly hydrate them. Uh, next one said also, Marine paralyzed from neck down after being shot in 29 Palms live fire exercise. He was a Lance Corporal with the 1st Battalion, 25th Marines. Uh, a reserve unit, and it sounds like it was a company-level live fire training, and he got shot and paralyzed. That's just fucking horrible. There was two on Fort Campbell in the last decade, and it's mostly because you train like you fight, or fight like you train, or whatever the old army adage is, and what ended up happening is they got shot through the side, and the bullet bounced between the plates. Terrible fucking way to go. Troops of the future may ditch night vision goggles in a favor of an eye injection. They're working on this in a lab. And basically what it would do is accentuate the eye's capacity to see in the dark. That would be really cool. 
Uh, if you've never stomped Bush with night vision goggles. Now, PVS-14, and I don't even know what the new shit is. The cool stuff you see, the seals wearing all that, are a lot like the PVS-7 used to be. And I ain't going to lie to you, stopping Bush with the PVS-7 really fucking sucked. Because both your eyes were blocked. And it was hard to look down. When we went to PVS-14, which was a single scope, it was a lot easier. You had a <clears throat> adjusted eye. You could see on patrols. And then you had your optic eye. Um, I can tell you after 20 years, because in the beginning of night vision goggles, let's be honest, it was kind of optional in most infantry units until I got to the 7th Infantry Division in 1993 or 91. 91. And... You would get an Article 15 if you weren't wearing your knots. I mean, you were forced to wear them. And you're talking starting a mission around 7, walking all night to a BMNT, beginning of mooring nautical twilight, like when the Indians attack type shit, which I've talked about on the show. All night in those knots. Uh, my night vision's fucking horrible. I can't see shit now. It's just fucking horrible. Sig Sauer offers first look at weapons that could replace Army's M4 and M249. Uh, Tuesday offered a first look at the automatic rifle and rifle prototypes for the U.S. Army Next Generation Squad weapon after the service selected the company to advance the next phase of testing for the 6.8mm weapon system. Sig Sauer, maker of the Army's new modular handgun system, was selected recently along with General Dynamics OTS Incorporated and AAI Corporation Textron Systems to deliver prototypes of both the automatic rifle and rifle versions of the NGSW, as well as hundreds of thousands of rounds of special 6.8-millimeter ammunition <clears throat> common to both weapons to Army testers over the next 27 months. The service plans to select a final design for both weapons from a single company in the first quarter of 2022 and begin replacing M4A1 carbines and M249 squadmatic weapons and infantry brigades combat teams in the first quarter of 2023. As part of the NGSW effort, the Army tasked gunmakers to develop a common cartridge using the government-tested 6.8-millimeter projectile. SIG engineered a complete new cartridge, resulting in more compact round with increased velocity and accuracy while delivering a substantial reduction in weight of the ammunition. <laughs> the high-pressure 6.8-millimeter hybrid ammunition is a significant leap forward in ammunition innovation design and manufacturing. SIG's automatic rifle version of the NGSW features a side-opening fee tray, increased availability rail space for night vision and other accessories, and a folding buttstock. The rifle prototype features a free-floating reinforced M-lock handguard, side-charging handle, and a full ambidextrous controls, as well as folding buttstock, according to the release. Both prototypes will also feature a new design suppressor that reduces harmful back blow and signature during firing. The Sig Sauer NGSWAR is lighter in weight, with dramatically less recoil than the but currently in service, with a carbine for the NGSWR rifle submission, is built on the foundation of the six-hour weapon and service with the premier fighting forces across the globe. Both weapons are designed to feature with increased capability of soldiers. The new prototyping agreement calls for each vendor to deliver 43 6.8 NGSW automatic rifles and 53 NGSW rifles, as well as 845,000 rounds of 6.8 millimeter ammunition according to the solicitation. Huh. 
That's going to be fucking high speed. Textron announced Friday that it will lead the team that includes Heckler & Coke for its small arm design, research and development, and manufacturing capability. It will work with Olin Winchester for small caliber ammunition production capabilities. Good to see. M4 is not a bad weapon, but it did have a lot of problems with jamming. Um, as stated on the show numerous times, but for those that are new, I'll restate. We used dry silicone spray. helped a lot. The sand just fell off it. Um, but it was a big difference between that and the M16. You know, back in the M16, you could spit in it when it was freezing outside, and you were good to go. Or, <clears throat> But when you got the M4, you could not put a bunch of brake free on that bitch because it would just gum up. This branch takes the cake as the U.S. military's fattest. Oh, this actually really surprised me. Sailors need remedial physical training. This could be just one of many conclusions drawn by a recent Department of Defense study and found that Navy earned the dubious honor surpassing all branches of the rate of obese personnel. The overall rate of fat service members is also up from recent years, with percentage of personnel weighing in at obese standards climbing to over 17%. The number spiked to our over a quarter of service member over the age of 35. For the Navy, the overall number of obese personnel was a shocking 22%. Air Force 18, Army 17, Marine Corps 8.3%. And while the Marine Corps was the least overweight of a bunch, a characteristic partial attributed to the Corps having the youngest average age of personnel, the Marines reported the highest rate of knee and back injuries. The Navy, meanwhile, reported the lowest incident rate of cumulative injuries, how much of that could be related to inactivity was not determined. Rate of obesity was configured using the off-criticized body mass index measure, which indicated a service member is obese if their BMI is 30 or higher. Mm. I don't even want to know what my BMI is. Probably 1,000. The report highlighted obesity and growing health concern among sailors. Obesity contributes to hypertension, diabetes, coronary heart disease, stroke, cancer, all-cause mortalities. And also costs the DOD significant coin. Department of Defense, our nation's largest employer, spends about $1.5 billion annually in obesity-related health care costs for current and former service members. Overweight and obese active-duty military also cost DOD $103 million per year in the form of 658,000 lost workdays. In the civilian world, unfit or overweight employees are impacted can impact the bottom line. But in our line of work, lives are on the line and our national security is at stake. Civilian world is one which, as of 2015, one in three young adults are considered too fat to enlist, contributing to a difficult-to-navigate environment for recruiters to find suitable candidates. In 2018, RAND report that analyzed rates of both obese and overweight troops painted a grim picture of the military's physical fitness standards. The study, featuring roughly 18,000 randomly selected participants across each of the service branches, reported that almost 66% of service members are considered to be either overweight or obese using BMI. Broken down by service, the 2018 report lists the Army as the branch counting for the highest percentage of overweight troops, 69.4% 69.4% of soldiers falling under this category. The Army was followed by the Coast Guard, 67.8, Navy, 64.6, Air Force, 63.1, and Marine Corps, 60.9. If we don't take steps now to build a strong, healthy foundation for our young people, then it will also just be our military, and also won't be the military that pays the price. <clears throat> you know, I really thought the Air Force. Um, Navy have always been kind of chubby, but... When you see 
the Air Force, like I was just, you know, on Manoa Air Force Base. My God, there's a lot of fat fucks. I mean, seriously, guys that made me look normal. Which is kind of scary if you break it down, because I'm a fat tard, you know. My BMI is probably 40. That's what I'm thinking. It's not good. But first female Air Force Airman earns Army Ranger tab. Wow. Nearly 300 airmen have earned the tab since the Army started accepting airmen 64 years ago, but none have been women. This That is, until Air Force First Lieutenant Chelsea Hibbish became the first female airman to earn the tab last week. Hibbish, a foreman enlisted airman who previously served with the 374th Security Force Squadron at Yokota Air Base in Japan, pinned on the tab on... Ranger School graduation on August 30th. She was eligible to take the Army Ranger course after she attended the Air Force Ranger Assessment Course, which is hosted by the Air Force Security Force Center based on the first two weeks of Army Ranger course. She also attended the Tropic Lightning Academy at Schofield Barrack in Hawaii. It's like the Light Leader Course or... Um, what do we call it at Fort Ord? I can't remember. It was mandatory for all leaders to go to this course, and you basically had, like... All the pain and suffering of Ranger School shoved in 17 days. Hibbis described the Air Force Ranger Assessment Course as an unmatched learning experience on leadership and followership and prepared it for Ranger School because it provided an understanding of how you function when you're hungry, tired, wet, cold, and worse. Then you have to lead a team of individuals feeling the exact same way. You really find out a lot about your teammates and yourself in these stressful situations. And as a person who passed pre-Ranger like three fucking times... But never went to ranger school, and then when I was offered it, I was already in E6, and I just pussed out. I didn't go. Um, I went to drill. It was about the same time. You know, it is great for combat leaders to go through this, and the tab is still something that all infantrymen should. It's my only regret for my 20 years. I should have gone. I didn't, and I wish I would have. But it'll break you down good and proper. And what else will break you down good and proper? Our college crazy. Berkeley offers credit for Pokemon Academy, Marvel, and Hogwarts classes. University of California Berkeley program features these stupid fucking courses towards two credits towards a degree. The DECAL program, a student-run course program offered by the university, allows students to create their own classes on any subject. Program boasts more than 150 semesterly courses in which 3,000 to 4,000 Berkeley students typically enroll. The responsibility of such courses rests on the department chair, faculty members, and student facilitators who all sign a contract of understanding before the DECAL is reviewed by the Committee on Course of Instruction and Academic Senate, the program says on its About page. One such course that students at DECAL are offering to their peers is a Cal Pokemon Academy that offers two course units upon completion. The course will cover the history of the franchise, which includes marketing, popular media, as well as the games themselves. We also discuss social issues within Pokemon that delve into the theoretical science behind your favorite creature. If you pick this one, you're racist. (laughs) According to the syllabus obtained by campus reform, students will need to draw a picture of themselves as a trainer alongside their favorite Pokemon design, their own card for a training card game, create recruitment, and add a villainous team. you got to be fucking shitting me. There you go. Decal Program also offers a course called UC Marvel Cinematic Universe, which explores the world 
explores the world of Marvel while watching and examining certain Marvel movies focusing on the character development, business models, and marketing strategies. The course counts as a Psych 198 class and offers one course units. Students should be able to see the movies and point out the various social, ethical, political, and economic themes that are highlighted within them. They should be able to criticize and critically analyze MCU's presence and the relevance in the modern world. One April 22nd event on Facebook associated with the course advertised two hours of heated debate and discussing discussion regarding the Avengers Infinity War movie. The third class, UC Hogwarts, the wonderful wizarding word world of Harry Potter, focuses on Harry Potter books. So compelling to generate generations of readers and what has been made into a best-selling book series of all time. The class will focus on topics with series such as history of magic, witchcraft, and wizardry, social hierarchies, and the role of race and culture, the role of government and corruption, concentrating on authoritarianism. The class will also feature activities such as wand-making and horcruxes hunting. Yeah! That, that's it, which brings us to our next article, which I can't believe there's a double on these, but there sure the hell is. Emma Meschel, colleges are becoming more like adult summer camps. We talked about those, but there's also tailgating, belly dancing. Yeah, that's a class. Belly dancing. I can't fucking believe it. Belly dancing is a... And you get credits for that shit. Yeah. Professor, which just makes sense with this next article, includes crying claws in syllabus. Yeah. An Iowa professor is making sure that students have a safe space to express their emotions in class by including a crying clause in his English course syllabus. Grinnell College professor Dean Bocopoulos publicly announced Monday that the syllabus for his fiction writing seminar course includes a section reassuring students that it's okay to cry in class. Yes, I do have a crying clause in my syllabus. Bacalabalabalas tweeted. And this is his tweet, and I can barely read it, so let's let's um, get this thing bigger so we can read this silly, silly shit. Um, this is actually a tweet from a college professor. We will form for the next 15 weeks or so and create uh, as a creative community bails upon a common love of literature and strengthened by a diverse perspectives and differing opinions. As a leader of this community, I will likely direct and redirect conversations as needed. I will offer survey. I'll probably make several major mistakes during the course of the semester. I might even believe myself to be correct when I am not. I expect you to do the same. This underscores the binding contract of this community. We do not expect, we do expect enthusiasm, dedication, and delicate blend of humility and swagger and the willingness to take risks. We strive not to offend one another, but in the event that this happens, a sincere and swift apology will go a long way. We will likely deal with work and subjects and blah, blah, blah to his little directives. Um, more clinically and to the point, students will need, will need, will read works from a diverse 
roster of this, this is so blurry. Sorry, I got a bad picture. Contemporary writers enthusiastically participate in class discussions of these works. Students will write several creative exercises. Students will thoughtfully open word, and it goes on and on. And then he says that I'll fucking let you cry in there. And wow, yeah. You may also cry when you want to cry. In this class, crying is like coughing or blowing your nose. Sometimes it must be done and will not be remarked upon or laughed at. Yeah. We're preparing them for the real world. Mascot madness. School spirit symbols on the chopping block. The Colonials. George Washington University, D.C. have launched a campaign to replace the Colonial mascot with one without a deep connection to colonization. Pioneer. After failed attempts to replace retired mascot Denver Boone, the University of Denver now has no official mascot. Until recently, the school's pioneer nickname was the only remaining official unifying symbol for students. Amid controversy, the school has begun quietly removing the word pioneer from student ID cards and other official university documents and communication, despite insisting that it still embraces the nickname. What is wrong with pioneer? And what the fuck? Prospector Pete of the 49er? Yeah, we already talked about that because, you know, it was uh, a time in history when indigenous people of California endured subjugation, violence, and threats of genocide. Holy fuck. Chief Illiwick, University of Illinois, commission advised public retirement of the Native American mascot after, after critics deemed him to be offensive to indigenous people. Other characterized the changes attempt to purge native representation at the university. Well, you cannot be woke enough, can you? Cowboys! Two dozen professors banded together to demand the University of Wyoming cease the use of its marketing campaign slogan, The World Needs More Cowboys. Because as one professor put it, the, world cow- the word cowboy invokes a white, macho male, able-bodied, heterosexual, U.S.-born person. The university stood its ground and continued use of the slogan, which turned out to be a success, generating 38,000 increase in royalties over the previous year. Jesus Christ, don't be masculine. And then this article says, any possible Native American mascot you haven't even thought of yet, and they're so right. These motherfuckers. <laughs> then we go to California. So we got crying in college. This is a school, high school. California bill would bar schools from suspending students for defying teachers. SB 419, which was authored by California State Senator Nancy Skinner, we also Berkeley, oh, are we surprised? Not. States that existing law allows students to be suspended, the superintendent of schools, district, or the principal of the school in which the pupil is enrolled determines that the pupil has committed a specified act, including, among other things, disrupting school activities or otherwise willfully defying the valid authority of supervisors, teachers, administrators, school officials, or other school personnel engaged in the performance of the duties. What's wrong with that? Then the bill adds, the bill would additionally prohibit the suspension of a pupil enrolled in a school district or charter school in grades 4 and 5 for disrupting school activities or otherwise willfully defying the valid authority of those school personnel engaged in the performance of duties. The bill from July 1st, 2020 until July 1st, 2025 would prohibit the suspension of pupils enrolled in school districts or charter schools in any grades 6 to 8 inclusive of those acts. After listing a number of issues that would be caused for suspension, the bill adds, for people subject to discipline under his section, a superintendent of the school district or principal and encouraged to provide alternatives to suspension or expulsion using a research-based framework with strategies that improve behavioral and academic outcomes. Jesse Ryan, president of the Sacramento School School Board, 
told KCRA, The wonderful thing about restorative justice is that students quite often are given a minute to reset and be mindful of their action. There's an opportunity to calm the classroom. It's not just taking a route where you go directly from 0 to 100 by suspending a student, which we know doesn't work. Skinner said she wants to reduce suspensions and expulsions because her goal needs to be to keep kids in school and to have them be successful. According to the Sacramento Bee, she wrote in mid-August, despite recent efforts to reduce California prison incarceration rates, severe racial disparities persist in our criminal justice system. Research strongly suggests that one way to reduce these disparate racial outcomes is to disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline. Data shows that black and brown youth are far more likely to be suspended from school than their white peers, and long-term studies have revealed that students who are suspended for at least 10 days are less likely to graduate and more likely to be arrested and incarcerated in the mid-20s. Los Angeles City also passed it. The portal will ban suspension of students for willful defiance. A defense criticizes subjective catch-all for such behavior as refusing to take off a hat, turn off a cell phone, or failing to wear a school uniform. Yeah. Well, here's your theory. I'm a white guy, and uh, I, by the way, got suspended two weeks drinking alcohol on school grounds, and I didn't go to jail. Was it my white privilege? No. High school students searched after posing non-threatening four-year-old photo himself with a gun. A student in Iola, Texas, Independent School District, was searched after he posted a four-year-old photo of himself shooting a handgun with adult supervision. The male student had posted the photo on Facebook, and the caption included the word school, so two other students reported the photo. Students who posted the photo were questioned and searched. Seemingly aware of how absurd the situation was, Iowa ISD Superintendent Scott Martinez told KBTX TV3, that it took us five minutes to handle the situation and handle it appropriately. Search was deducted because the post that included the photo contained the word school, even though, as Merritt said, did not threaten the school whatsoever. Still jumpy institution looked into every instance. The photo was from when the student was nine, shown him holding a pistol with an adult. The two were shooting in a country in the country, according to KBTX. The search of the student occurred on the second day of school. Martindale said they spoke to the student before school started, and by 75-55, the elementary principal tracked that student down that had the posting. Lieutenant Daniel Wagner of the Grimes County Office Sheriff's Office told the outlet an investigation was necessary and that the photo of the gun was not the sole issue. The issue was not that the juvenile had a firearm. He was under adult supervision at the time he had the firearm. The sole reason for the investigation was that the comment was made about the school in conjunction with the firearm. Even though the student was found not to be a threat, a photo was non-threatening and no threat against the school was mentioned, he still would be disciplined according to district policy. The outlet reported that the county attorney is also reviewing the case, but that no charges have been filed. What the fuck? What the fuck? See, this is the kind of problems we have with the red flag. Red flag. Laws. Make everybody like this. This is why kids have a Pop-Tart pistol and get kicked out. Yeah. Chad Felix Green. Nothing in this story makes sense. Illinois student charged with hate crime after a noose was found hanging in a dorm elevator. A 19-year-old student at University of Illinois at Urbane-Champagne had been charged with felony hate crime after a noose was found hanging in a residence. 
Andrew Smith was arrested at 9.30 p.m. Monday after he was questioned by authorities in the residence hall at College Court in Urbana. He was charged with committing a hate crime, which is a felony, and a misdemeanor count of disorderly conduct. During an arraignment Tuesday afternoon, Champaign County Assistant State Attorney Kristen Alfernex said Smith found some rope in an elevator in Allen Hall the weekend and tied into the noose. About 1 a.m. Sunday, staff at Allen Hall found the news hanging inside an elevator in a public area of the building. A female friend who was with Smith in the elevator Sunday reported him to authorities. Smith pled not guilty Tuesday and was released on a $5,000 bond. He requested a trial by jury. So was this a hate crime? I mean, did he have a sign? Was he... Aiming it towards black people? I mean, what the fuck? Man. <clears throat> the left is surely jumpy. To our LGBT stuff, Kristen Stewart said she was told you might get a Marvel movie at the girlfriend Nick's PDA. So she was just saying because she was gay, she got fucked over. And then she gets this huge article. Actress Kristen Stewart calls her pansexuality part of gorgeous evolution. Traditional sexual and gender norms have no relevance in pop culture anymore. We're past the point where rebellious phase of youth are seen as just that. Now they're lauded as some sort of standard that older folks need to adhere to, lest they be called fascist. Though is it really that convincing that since Miley Cyrus or Kristen Stewart can't stay with a man, heterosexuality is just not working? Did we cover that last time? The former Twilight actress was quite candid with Britain's Harper Bazaar, about her struggles with fame and influence, particularly how social pressures on her sexuality has oppressed her and kept her from expressing her true self. Now that she's an out-and-about pansexual, though she doesn't like labels, so this is just our diagnosis for her desire to sleep with whatever she fancies that day, she's finally free. Stewart claimed that the bucking the heteronormative system and has worked wonders for her. Before then, however, it was tough. I was informed by an old school mentor mentality which is you want to preserve your career and your success and your productivity and there are people in the world who don't like you and they don't like that you date girls it was doubly hard for Stuart because not only was she not straight but she was also wasn't a lesbian and felt that bothered people who were looking for some way to put her in a box they don't like that you don't identify as quote unquote lesbian and people like to know stuff so what the fuck are you well, first of all, shame on those people who wondered if she was a lesbian because of the girl she was dating at her famous flame, Twilight co-star Robert Pattison. That's quite judgmental and betraying a lack of sophistication necessary to acknowledge her deeper, weirder sex identity. The maid clarified she doesn't identify as bisexual, she doesn't identify as lesbian, she doesn't like labels, until they're nowhere in the dictionary that the patriarchy may use to understand her place in reality, she won't be at peace. Although Stuart has been trapped in the horrible sexual limbo, she does see hope in her sexual freedom and her younger generation appear confident about, praising them for their openness and bravery. They don't ask her the what the fuck are you question. Commenting on the next generation, the actress added, I just think we're all kind of getting to a place where I don't know. Evolution's a weird thing. We're all becoming incredibly ambiguous. And it's this really gorgeous thing. We don't know, K-Stu, but it sounds like you're vastly overestimating how many people are deeply deluded about their sexualities. Yeah. Maybe for you weirdos it is, but I, you know, since birth I knew I liked boobs and vag. I didn't question that. But now it's cool to question it. And once again, I think more of this is just about 
I want to stand out. So she's pansexual. She fucks everything. PC term Latinx, Latinx, sorry, has an outbreak at Vox. For those of you who hoping that the absurd politically correct word Latinx would be laughed out of existence, no such luck. In fact, the left continues more vigorously to promote the silly word, which basically says that the Spanish language is not PC because so much of its words have endings that in, didn't indicate gender, such as Latino or Latina. The solution is to add an X in the end, which such words, but with the X pronounced the way it is in English rather than Spanish. One of this big purveyors of the Latinx nonsense is Vox. The first known use of the word Latinx was at Vox on July 28, 2016. Note, many people collectively refer to the generalized the gendered stem ending of Latina Latino using the A at symbol, while others prefer to stylize the word to Latinx to degenderize the term. It looks as if Latinx has won out over the equally absurd Latina with an at in the degenderization department. And from the moment three years ago, Latinx use of Vox has grown exponentially. The latest example came on Wednesday with Latinx in the title. Poll, Latinx voters are leaning Dem in 2020 battleground states, followed by 20 times in the body of the article. A new poll of Latinx voters has been potentially good news for Democrats. According to the survey, voters in battleground states are souring on Trump and open to other options in 2020. How about a poll of Latino voters reacting to the Democrats referring to them as Latinx? The New York Times has also took a brief dip in Latinx last year with another hot take on the term Latinx. Latinx means to be more feminist inclusive term that also considers transgender folks or those who don't identify with gender binary has started to pop up more frequently in recent years. So many explainers and articles and videos have been created about why it should or should not be used. The phrase is widely adopted on college campuses and by activists and in September Merriam-Webster added it to the dictionary because they're all in on the word smithing. This is all it is is word smithing. But this is what we do now. This is from dictionary.com. It has a separate search page for all words, which you can use to find the real meaning of slang, emoji, and other word weird words. One of those weird expressions you can learn about is the don't tread on me. Being libertarian. Dictionary.com says don't tread on me is racist. This is from it. Don't tread on me. What does don't tread on me? Mean? Don't tread on me is a historic expression of American patriotism and freedom. In the 20th century, libertarian and conservative politicians like to use the phrase, making it seem racist and offensive. Because they're using it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you fuckheads. Pulitzer Prize finalist, female author, stop wearing red hats. It's scary. Female author has been a Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award finalist, took Trump derangement syndrome to a new level, stating on Twitter that she doesn't want people to wear red hats because they're making everybody scared. She wrote, Is anyone else made really uncomfortable these days by anyone wearing any kind of red baseball cap? Like I see one and my heart does weird shit, and then I finally realize it only says Titleist or whatever. Maybe don't wear red caps anymore, normal people. Also, for the love of, God, love of God, the clever folks wearing Make America Read Again or whatever caps, no, you're making everyone scared. Don't do it. 
If you're here to be contrary, an equivalent here would be Western Hindus choosing not to use the swastika symbol in public despite it being scared to their faith because it would offend and frighten people. The red hat has become a symbol of hate because of how its wearers act. Micaiah added, Also, I love all the people who are all like, You can't police me, libtard. Please note that I was specifically addressing normal people, the ones who don't want to freak people out at a distance. The ones who enjoy it should absolutely continue letting us know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is liberalism. This is liberalism. I mean, seriously. I have to change my conduct because of your beliefs. Later tweets. It's really weird today how they seem to have only two jokes here again and again. Seek help. And is this thread real? Twitter can suck, but it's delightful to be on the side of the consistently funny people. A.R. Moxon. Someday on some unrelated Google search, I'll accidentally find the site where they post the five monthly thoughts conservatives online are permitted to express. And it'll be like discovering an elephant graveyard for unoriginal shitheads. <laughs> uh. Micaiah, whatever the fuck her name has not been reticent about her opposition to President Trump. In December 2018, she wrote that she hit a low. How do we keep fighting one more day low? A scream silently into the mirror low. A twilight of democracy low. I tried to distract myself by retreading to the bubble of literary Twitter where I started a thread listing some of my favorite overlooked fiction. Soon, though, someone jumped in with a bit of scolding. We're 100 days out from an election, she wrote. That's what we should all be thinking about. Micaiah wrote that she responded, I refuse to live in a world when an oppressive regime prevents us from advocating for art. As far as being frightened by mega hats, Micaiah might take note that there have been numerous incidents in which people wearing mega hats were the one assaulted. How about December 2017? A group of students wearing Make America Great hats were booted from a non-profit coffee shop on Fordham University. On April 2018, the woman at a D.C. restaurant also told reporters she was assaulted for being a Trump supporter. July 2018, a manager of a popular seafood joint in Vancouver discriminated against company, a customer, in an iconic Make America Great hand. November 2018, a female Harvard University graduate student who had a mega hat and legally owned guns in a room was asked by her apartment owner to move out. February 2019, a man from Tennessee allegedly pulled a gun on a mega hat wearer. A make America, a man wearing a make a mega hat stuck the gun in the mega hat wearing man's face, reportedly threatened, "It's a good day for you to die." But red hats are scary. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what we need to be scared of: the red fucking hat. For the weird, art gallery visitors must squeeze between naked man and woman standing in a door. Visitors must brush past a naked man and woman in a doorway at an exhibition by Serbian performance artist Marina Abravanic at the Royal Academy in London next year. Yeah, you people are weird. From Sean in Oregon, I was going to cover this, but I didn't cover it in one of the podcasts. I don't know why. I bumped it at the last second, so good on you, bringing it back up. Boston Straight Pride Parade kicks off its plan, draws protests. They've got gay everything, every place. A long-anticipated and controversial Straight Pride Parade commenced in Boston on Saturday, drawing 
Crowds of both supporters and hecklers on top of heavy police presence, presence reported NBC News. The parade, which drew several dozen participants, kicked off around noon to the sounds of Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA and some floats displaying messages of support for Trump, Build the Wall, Trump Nation, and Blue Lives Matter. Plans for the straight pride parade kicked off during LGBT Pride Month with the group Super Happy Fun America secured permits from the city of Boston after first being rejected. As Daily Wire's James Barrett reported, the city initially rejected the straight pride proposal, but after the group filed a discrimination complaint and has conceded that it cannot deny a group on account of its values or beliefs, as explained by Mayor Marty Walsh earlier this month. Permits to host a public event are granted based on operational feasibility, not based on values or endorsements of belief. CBS Boston notes that Super Happy Fun America initially requested the City Hall fly a straight pride flag, as it does for gay pride flag, but the request was denied as the city officials said they have sole discretion on what flags to fly, and we only bend left. According to the Boston Globe, the parade on Saturday drew only a few hundred marchers who were outnumbered by protesters heckling them with accusations of bigotry and homophobia. Shame on you, the protesters reportedly yelled. Members of the LGBT community saw the parade as a promotion of discrimination rather than the actual straight pride. This quote-unquote other side is pretending that they're just a foolish group of freedom of speech lovers who are advocating that straight people have all the rights that queer people have. Willie Bernie Jr. helped organize a counter-protest called Hands Off Our Pride, told Boston Globe. These people aren't welcome here, and I feel that need to tell them myself. 41-year-old Lisa McGill, that isn't about straight pride. This is about hating everyone who isn't them. As a straight person, I'm outraged at the idea of them arguing that straight people are the oppressed majority, said Shohanna Enrich, a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. We're not the ones beat up, marginalized, and harassed for our sexuality. Gunny, proof that people are beat up? I'm just asking. While liberals foamed the bulk of the protesters, the parade indeed drew a fair amount of criticism from conservative circles, and it was Matt Walsh. Ocasio-Cortez mocks Boston Straight Pride Parade over lack of women. AOC on Saturday called up participants in Boston Straight White Parade, saying it should have been called I Struggle with Masculinity Parade. For men who are alleged so proud of being straight, they seem to show real incompetence in attracting women to their event. Seems more like I Struggle with Masculinity Parade to me. Hope they grow enough over the next year to support Join LGBTQ Family Next. Hashtag Pride. In a subsequent tweet, she asked for contributions to bail fund for activists who put themselves on the line protecting the Boston community. Straight Pride Parade was poorly organized by a group of three men on the way to respond to the festivities that go inside with LGBT Pride Month in June. Yada, 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 yada. To prove how vehement these people are about any opposite protest, here's a soundbite from a socialist YouTube channel that's online and was not killed by YouTube, which sounds kind of hateful to me. We're here! We're queer! We're militant! This is JD reporting with Liberation News. We're at Government Center in downtown Boston covering fight supremacy, which is one of two counter demonstrations against the so-called straight pride march happening today. When straight pride was first announced in June, it quickly became a topic of national and international discussion as memes poked fun at the audacity and ignorance of the initiative. The organizers of the demonstration have gone to great lengths to uphold this lighthearted image of themselves. 
They have coalesced under the banner of an organization called Super Happy Fun America and have appropriated language from various progressive movements claiming to celebrate diversity and social justice. Despite this charade, the straight pride organizers are dangerous people with dangerous ideologies. We know that the organizers of the so-called straight pride do not limit their bigotry to sexuality. Their stated goal is to defend heterosexuality, Caucasians, and Western civilization, and to promote American nationalism. These are all dog whistles for homophobia, transphobia, white nationalism, and fascism, all intertwined into one reactionary coalition. At the second major protest, straight pride is hate pride, Police suddenly broke through their own barricades to arrest multiple protesters completely unprovoked. Instead of letting the day's events dwindle and resolve peacefully, police escalated every situation, leading to the arrest of 34 counter-protesters, including some press and street medics. Police used pepper spray, beat the protesters with their bikes and fists, and treated a street medic's bag as a bomb threat. An estimated 4,000 cops from Boston and the surrounding area were paid overtime to beat and unjustly arrest LGBTQ people and their allies peacefully opposing racism and homophobia in their community. stand against racism, homophobia, transphobia, and misogyny wherever it is to be found. Um, the organizers of the Straight Pride March are looking to normalize their violent ideology with broad segments of the working class in this country. However, it is our responsibility to make sure that we wage the battles for uh, the ideas and the ideology in our workplace, in our homes, and in the streets. You know, they get so... F- it, it, all these Proud Boys ones in, in uh, Portland and this straight pride thing, they're such small protests, but the left won't let it happen, and they get attack them. People got arrested, and then, of course, Boston dropped all the charges, and they got away with what they did. But they cannot allow counter-thought. Granted, you know, straight pride is a trolling motherfucking operation. But why don't they have the free speech to go do it? And why isn't there a nuclear family flag flown on fucking city halls, but gay fly, you know, gay rights flags are everywhere. The White House went gay right. Hell, you talk about normal fucking marriage and you're a piece of fucking shit. It just, once again, liberals suppress all opposing thoughts through words, wordsmithing, doxing, social media, protesting. There'll be a Democratic president, there'll be protest, and every one of those protests will be ist, ob, it won't matter. It's always, you're hateful. It's hate when you go protest Democratic ideas or politicians. Yet the Women's March said they wanted to blow up the fucking White House, and that was about love wins. Yeah. 
Illinois woman has her 9-11 memorial on her property. The town wants her to remove it. A couple living in a suburb roughly 50 miles north of Chicago is battling an edict from the town telling them to remove the memorial. Lee Garnell Wood and her husband bought the Spring Bluff Elementary School bought the Spring Bluff Elementary School in Winthrop Harbor, which has been closed in 2011. They live there with their children. The school's property, including Memorial Boulder, NBC Chicago Report, in June 2012, Girl Scout Kasha Strathman took the 9-11 memorial on as her gold award project, raising money for the plaque that now sits on the boulder, reading, We Shall Never Forget. Cornelia Wood acknowledged that before she and her husband bought the property, the village asked them, that the boulder be removed. NBC Chicago reported she and her husband agreed and asked the village to remove it in the boulder within the year and put the property back together while local officials never did. The village is going to remove the boulder, but after a public outcry, they left it there. On Monday, Garnelia Wood said that the last week the village board informed her the signage on the memorial was obsolete and she had 10 days to remove it or else she'd get a $500 fine per day. She stated, I've never heard of a plaque being an issue. There are people who have plaques in their yards all over the place. It's not gaudy. It's not hurting anybody. It is just these are liberals. Popeye employer literally being held at gunpoint over nude fried chicken sandwich. Monday night, Popeye's employee in the Houston area were held at gunpoint for selling out a famed restaurant chain latest fried chicken sandwich. A group of people with gun rushed the door. On Scott and Quarter, they wanted the chicken sandwich. Same employees. Employees were able to lock them out. Houston police responded. ABC affiliate reporter Jessica Wiley posted to Twitter. Group of people with guns rushed the door on Scott and Quarter. They wanted a chicken sandwich. About a half an hour after Willie posted her tweet, the Twitter account for the Houston police confirmed the reporting writing. Southeastern officers are at 7100 Scott. Male pulled a gun on employee over a fucking chicken sandwich. You know, I can understand people getting pissed off. Let's break this down. They get this new sandwich. It's just a fucking sandwich. And they rush it out. And it was on my David Spade show. There's a rapper who's pissed. They flew. It was Diplo, not a rapper. He's a DJ. They lost their fucking mind over a sandwich. This sandwich has made people lose their ever-loving mind. But what company rolls out something new and doesn't have it? I mean, they said they optimistically forecasted, but they never, they just ran out. Like in a month, it was gone. It's unbelievable. But it's a chicken sandwich, folks. KFC sells it. There's a bunch of chicken places. You can make your own chicken sandwich. Take a fucking chill pill. Woman impersonates a 21-year-old daughter in an attempt to avoid arrest. Spoiler alert, didn't work. 30-year-old woman told police officers that she was actually her 21-year-old daughter when they attempted to arrest her for driving without a license and having drug paraphernalia in her vehicle. Heather Garcia was pulled over in Davis County, Utah last week. KUTV reported that an, an officer noticed her silver BMW did not have a license. When officers searched the vehicle, they found drug paraphernalia and a white powdery meth subject. When officers arrested her, she claimed her name was Mercedes and she was born in 1998. This is actually personal information for Garcia's daughter. The police identified the woman as Heather. They found out she had also some outstanding warrants. She was arrested, charged with drug position, driving with a revoked dialect license, having this, having that, being a douchebag, and she looks like shit. No way you're going to pull off 
You were born in 98, dumbass. And last but not least, woman survives from an 80-foot fall down a South Dakota cliff. A Minnesota woman miraculously survived after falling more than 80 feet down a cliff in South Dakota State Park Monday. The woman, only identified as a 20-year-old, was visiting Palisade State Park, roughly 20 miles northwest of Sioux Falls. I drove past it. When she fell around 5.30, according to Minnehaha County Sheriff's Office, witness spot the woman hit the side of a cliff multiple times before falling in the water of Split Rock Creek. One lucky mofo. Which takes us to our lighter fare. I'm going to plug for Matt Best, 11X. He put out a book. I'm going to buy it. I like this guy. Here's his shameless pop plug for his new book. So I decided to write a book about my crazy-ass life. Oh, hi, wife. Thank you. In this book, I talk about my time in special operations and as a contractor. I had to redact that. Go for poster. Anybody need a hand? You see, this isn't your average military book. I talk about being an internet douchebag, business, and getting a flesh-eating bacteria in Florida. I feel like a Navy SEAL. I discuss how I own too many guns. Just kidding. That's not a thing. Train how you fight! And even if you hate my book, there's plenty of other applications for it. Balancing a table. Or a non-lethal concealed carry option. As toilet paper. I talk about why I love this country so much and all the amazing opportunity it's provided me. Patriotism is racism. Okay. What's up, man? Uh, America Appreciation Money? Yep. Ooh, where'd you send it? Syria. Sweet. And actually, I am going to need that back. All right, Jared, let's fold this up. Woo! Publishing day, babe. Hey, guys, finally my book is out. Available everywhere books are sold. I don't think a book like this has ever been written. And most importantly, I just want to say thank you for the support over all the years, all the crazy times. The love and support means everything to me. You gonna bring back that guy from Syria? Oh, Brings us to our This Is America. A lot of articles coming out lately. I think we covered one last podcast. And then this audio tape that basically surmised that the entire Blazy Ford bullshit during Supreme Court nomination was all bullshit. And it was just done for politics. And they're proud of that. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing fake liberal agenda stories. This is America in 2019. Guns in my area. I got the strap. 
And then finally, you know, according to the Washington Post, she's a Democrat. Um, a lot of people look at this and say, here's somebody who has a political motive to tell this story. What would you say to that? I would say no one in their right mind, regardless of their motive, would want to inject themselves into this process and face the kind of uh, annihilation that she will uh, be subjected to by those who want this nominee to go through. This is not a politically motivated action. In fact, she was quite reluctant to come forward, and she was, in fact, outed after she had made the decision not to come forward. Deborah Katz, thank you for coming on this morning. We appreciate thank it. You. Aftermath of these hearings, I believe that Christine's testimony brought about more good than the harm misogynist Republicans caused by allowing Kavanaugh on the court. We were going to have a conservative. Elections have consequences. But he will always have an asterisk next to his name. When he takes a scalpel to Roe v. Wade, we will know who he is, we know his character, and we know what motivates him. And that is important. It is important that we know and that was part of what motivated Christine. We all know. He will always have an asterisk. Same woman in the interview, same woman in the end. Why is our media not playing that ad nauseum? You know why? Because they were part of it. They knew this is what's going to happen. They knew it. Have no reservations that these people knew what they were doing. There was going to be a Republican. It didn't matter what they did. A conservative was going to be appointed to the Supreme Court. So as they did with um, <clears throat> freaking Biden and the way they took down Clarence Thomas, he's always had the asterisk. He sexually harassed a woman. And then forever they can say, hey, he's a bad person. Now, Ginsburg, who pushed abortion, Kagan and Sotomayor, who were Democratic activists. You never hear that other in conservative media. But that's the game the left plays. We can't stop you from what you're doing because elections do have consequences, but we're going to play dirty so that person always, always is tainted. They're just tainted. And because conservatives are adults, yeah, they might smear them in the press, but they don't put up fake people lying. Every normal person in America during that time knew it was politics. Our media played like it wasn't. And they continue to act like it's okay. It's horrible for Mitch McConnell to say, my number one goal is to make sure he doesn't get elected. That's a racist piece of shit. An obstructionist. And for the eight years of Obama, all you heard was obstruction, obstruction, obstruction. But with the left... They protested the day of the fucking inauguration. They blocked everything he's ever done. Everything. And it's patriotic dissent. So, that is the worst thing I've heard. Even though I knew it, it's the worst. But I'm going to break my... This is America, it's the last soundbite of the show. Because tonight is Packers Bears in... Soldier Field, we're probably going to lose, 
but I saw this on NFL's Twitter's account, and I would be remiss as a Packers fan, regardless of I don't think we're going to be better than 9-7 and seven this year, I still love my Packers. So these are the top 10 moments in the 198 meetings of this team. Tonight's 199, when they meet in Lambeau at the end of the season, it'll be the 200th time the Bears and the Packers have lined up and played football, which is an amazing statistic. So, top 10 Packer and Bear highlights. A lot of good Packer highlights in here. Randall Cobb, I'm wearing your jersey right now, brother. You had a couple in here, and I love you for it. No NFL teams have played each other more than the Chicago Bears and Green Bay Packers. It's the league's longest-running rivalry. Second down, five, Peyton, and Peyton's got the first down. Look at him right across the 40. And Walter Peyton, who may carry the ball 30 times before the day is over, is impressive. Up the middle, here comes Peyton. To the 45, he may go. He's to the 35, the 30. Walter Peyton is cut off. Avellini, here comes Peyton. And Peyton is in for the touchdown. Unbelievable. The stadium is very quiet, and they're just kind of watching Peyton in awe. It's the 190th renewal of the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers. On fourth and goal, off the play fake, passes caught for a touchdown. Under pressure from Young, rolls the right side, to the end zone, touchdown! Four-man rush, good protection, lots of time, wide open, Jordy Nelson turns it back inside. Jordy Nelson to the end zone. Three possessions and three touchdowns. Scrambles to his right, buying time. Rainbow's right side of the end zone. Jordy wide open. Touchdown! Dumps it over the right side on the screen. He's got Lacey at the 50. And Lacey to the end zone. Touchdown! Blitz. And what a catch! It'll be six touchdowns in the first half. Wow. First and goal inside the Green Bay one for the Bears. Hand off to Perry, crushes the right side. <laughs> you knew after that play that something had been born. The refrigerator. <laughs> and we had no idea how big it was going to be. The legend <laughs> continues, William Perry. That's it, here comes Chester Marshall. It's a 35-yarder coming up. The kick is on a white block. The Bears block it. Chester picked it up. Chester's running. Chester's gonna score, and the Packers win it. He won it by picking up a block field goal. Holy cow! Tonight is the first time in this long and storied rivalry that the two will meet on Thanksgiving, and it's fitting then that this is the first Thanksgiving Day game at Lambeau Field. And busting through, and Eddie Lacy is inside the ten and all the way to the end zone. Back to throw, slips, hit, throwing open, left side, touchdown! Touchdown, Jack Miller! Give it to Jeremy Langford. Falls in for the touchdown! Brett Favre's number four up on the north facade of Lambeau Field next to Reggie White. Throws again, and it's intercepted at the 45-yard line. Tracy Porter. On third down and goal. And Rodgers under pressure. Gets away. Throws and it's dropped in the end zone. James Jones. A trio to the left, two to the right. 
Bears rush four. Rodgers takes the snap. Settles in the pocket. Rolling to his near side. Rodgers pulls back. Throws. It is incomplete. Off the hands of the receiver. The Chicago Bears, heavy underdogs, will have come into Lambeau Field on a night that Brett Favre gets his number retired and pulled off pretty stunning upset. Now, if Brett Favre is going to have a good day today, obviously his ankle has to hold up. Favre gets some time and screen pass to Edgar Bennett, and he may score. And Bennett is in for a touchdown. What a courageous drive by the Green Bay Packers and their injured quarterback, Brett Favre. Favre with a short drop. Pass is caught by Brooks, and he's going to score in the Packers lead. Quarterbacking is really done with your legs and your feet. Watch how he sets on the right. See, now he has to step into that ball. First and goal at the one. There's a toss to Levin's touchdown Packer. Short field for Brett Favre. He starts from the Bear 44-yard line. Here comes the blitz. It's picked up. And down is Brooks. And Brooks is going to score. The Packers may tie it again. Reverse to... Bennett on the screen, play, five yards, touchdown, Green Bay. Four in a row for the Packers in a gunny, courageous performance as you'll ever see from Brett Favre. A lot of optimism surrounding the Chicago Bears and, of course, the Khalil Mack trade. Aaron Rodgers is back. He's healthy. He's 100%. Four-man rush. Here he comes. Look out. Down he goes at the 25-yard line. And that is a sight that has everybody's hearts stopping. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And this time he's going to go down. It's going to be picked off by Mack. Back with the interception. Mack will take it all the way in for a touchdown. What a half for Mack. When's the last time you saw a guy leave in a cart and come back into the game? One-on-one coverage. Rodgers dancing, throwing for the end zone, and it is holding. Touchdown, Geronimo Allison. And here we go. It's a game again. In the pocket. Steps up, shoots it to Devontae Adams, and Adams dives for the end zone. Touchdown. Surveying, fires, that's caught, Randall Cobb into Chicago territory. Randall Cobb inside the 20-yard line. Randall Cobb is going to score. 75 yards, that is crazy. My goodness. I heard an announcer one time say, I don't believe what I just saw. It's the largest fourth quarter deficit they have ever overcome. I don't think I'll forget this game for a long, long time. Ladies and gentlemen, before today's kickoff here at Lambeau Field and throughout the National Football League, we're going to honor Walter Payton's passing. So please stand to honor number 34 of the Chicago Bears, Walter Payton. Sweetness, thank you for touching us all. Formation near side, four wideouts. There's a handoff to Milburn. Milburn's got an open field to the 40. First down to the 35, the 30. He could go. Number 10, 5, touchdown yes. Bears. Far up the throw again. And intercepted again. 
Packers have their hands full today with the Chicago yeah, Bears here. Not dominating the Bear. The catch is made by Marcus Robinson. He misses back as the running back. Miller's going to throw it, however. It does. Touchdown. Somehow, someway, you got to find a block. The ball is down. Ball, the kick ball, is blocked. Block. Block. It's blocked. Get out of it. Block. Get out of it. It's Tony Perry. They finished. They blocked it. They blocked it, and time has expired. The Bears have it won it. What do you think Walter's thinking right now? Who's going to the Super Bowl from the NFC? He takes it into the end zone himself, diving for the pylon. Touchdown! To the end zone, reaching for the goal line. Touchdown! Touchdown. Brady throws it over the middle. Intercepted B.J. Raji to the end zone for the touchdown. And an NFC Championship dagger. This is for all the marbles. The season on the line. The NFC North Division Championship game. Flushed from the pocket on the roll. Throws the end zone. Intercepted. Pulls back. Quick throw. Throws hands. Intercepted. Bears second pick of the day. Throwing left. End zone. Touchdown. On first down, Rodgers is hit from behind, ball is out. They're saying this play is live. They're waiting for somebody to do something. That's Boykin. He's going to go in for a touchdown. How about that? Giving the man Forte bouncing left. Forte's going to stand up and in. Touchdown. Rodgers slides, throws, touchdown. Randall Cobb. 21-20 Bears starting the fourth. Cutler going to throw. Lobs it. Right corner. Touchdown, Brandon Marshall. What a grab. The NFC North Division Championship game is a long way from over. The Packers roar right back. Chicago leads by one. Fourth and seven. Take a listen to Soldier Field right now. Wentz. Rodgers gets out. Floats it. Peppers nearly sacking Rodgers. He lets loose and cobbles wide open. And NFC North Division Championship Dagger. Ain't that some shit? Out of 50 page script, and it's still three fucking hours. Sorry, folks. I talk too much. Or maybe you like it this way. I don't know. Because nobody emails me. But. I still got three hours. Shit. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with family and friends. Send comments by emailing foppodcast at gmail.com. Foppodcast gmail.com. Going to try something new today. I'm going to lower the um, conversion rate. I have been converting this at 96 kilobytes per second. I'm going to try to take it down to... 80 kilobytes per second, which will make a shorter download file. Um, I'd ask everybody out there to please, uh, Matt in Oregon, Sean, uh, anybody else that listens religiously, uh, please tell me if it sounds decent. It's still going to be 44,100 hertz, but 
um, it's going to be a smaller sample rate to try to take the file size down. So feedback would be great. 96 is what you get on a CD. I'm going to take it down 16. You can get this show on SoundCloud, Pocket Static, Tune Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and Pocket Cast. Remember, check out the Facebook page of FOP Podcast and the Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Our next podcast is going to be the 10th of September, Year of Our Lord, 2019. Um, one of my favorite podcasts is when I come back from the crack clinic. I don't know why. I just like it. I eat a lunch and sit in here and just enjoy it because the day's shot. <clears throat> my appointment's at 745, but I don't get my crack and get home until like 10, 30, 11. And then I sit in here and podcast. I always enjoy it. So we're just going to do it on that day. Give me some time to do a little bit of research in here or there on things that I want to build an ad that are <clears throat> better than the usual. I really do request some feedback. You want to hear some subjects. I haven't done a Fire for Effect podcast, or not a Fire for Effect, but a Friday free-for-all in a long time. I used to love those where I just do certain subjects. Um, so if there's any subjects you like to hear, Shoot me something like Sean in Oregon did. Um, I had skipped the straight pride and, you know, it was good to cover it. Uh, I should have covered that one. So if you want other subjects, shoot it my way. Uh, if you're in the South, stay cool. We're still going to be fucking hot as shit. It's killing me. And as usual, disconnect from your devices. Don't give the yeah, yeahs. Tonight, tune in root for the Green Bay Packers. We're the underdogs. We'll be the underdogs all season. New quarterback, uh, new offense, excuse me, not a new quarterback, new coach, totally different defense. Wow, I really wonder where it's going to be. Also on Saturday, root for my Ducks. It'd be nice to whoop up on Nevada. I don't think it's going to happen, but I hope it does. And uh, tune back in Tuesday for another exciting episode of the show. As always, thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count. <laughs>